where you would <laughs> give them like a once over and say, you're gross, next. Yeah. That guy had a set of belts, so I'm going to say next. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of We Explain Movies. I'm Kimmy. I'm Kayleen. And I'm Courtney. And this is the podcast where three best friends submerge you in a cesspool of spoilers as we explain, rate slash review, and decide whether or not to see the latest and greatest or most beloved classics of film. So this is cesspool for spoilers, if you haven't seen the movie that we're explaining this week, which is Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, tune out and tune back in once you've seen it, otherwise we're going to spoil the heck out of it. For other spoiler timestamps, check out our Instagram and Twitter at WeExplainMovies. Here's how it's going to go. We're going to start off by talking about what we watched this week, move on to some movie-related questions, followed by the explanation, and close out with some watch list ads and recommendations. It's going to be a blasty blast. Since we're all here together right now, and we're starting it out with this momentum, let's talk about what we literally just came home from watching, like, literally, literally just came home. second. We talked about it on the first episode. It was in my We List Movies episode yeah. selections amongst those. Which, that's a good episode. Go listen. I know. Go I listen. feel like, I low-key feel like people don't listen to it. It's one of my favorite episodes. It's funny. Yeah. Even though it's not Sorry the Sorry to my own horn, <laughs> but I like that one a lot. <laughs> Too, just I just uh, think it shows our personalities very yeah, well, yes. and it kind of kicks it off really well. I don't know. And because literally that day, like, fun podcast trivia for listeners, like, literally that day, we thought we were going to make a YouTube series, and we were like, yeah, why yes. don't we try a podcast, and then we kept it, and edited I was like, it, and posted cool, it. cool, I don't have to put pants on. And it's not... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you would have needed to for a YouTube video. You were definitely wearing <laughs> pants. And you were wearing pants. <laughs> She's not today, guys. Um, <laughs> that's yeah, but like for um, it wasn't even for hours. Where it was like hours later, we we're like, yeah. yes, we'll do that. It was minutes. It was like thirty minutes. It was like, guess no, this is a podcast now. Let's yeah. do this. Yeah, because uh, we were a YouTube channel originally. Yeah. Also, it's it's kind of a cool episode. Maybe like on our anniversary, we'll do an episode about our favorite movies, and we'll yeah. do like a top ten countdown or something. I don't know. But I, either I don't know. Just football. Oh, all right, just football. Uh, this is all a tangent to what we were getting to, which was <laughs> which we've gotten to just now. <laughs> This is one of those movies that I talked about. It is Selena. What did you think of Selena? My best friends. Say okay. one of my faves. Gotta be honest. When it started, I was like, oh, man. Because you guys know me. I'm really not like an old movies person. It's, it's a cheese fest from the 90s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, and I, I'm not super into that. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just because I have a lot of overwhelming things happening to me this week or whatever, but I was here for it like after the first couple minutes even the cheesy stuff I was like I couldn't stop crying y'all like (laughs) I couldn't stop crying like even at the the not as dramatic stuff at the beginning when she's like when I get on that stage (laughs) dang it okay I wanted to talk about that like I can do anything or whatever I'm like you can't do anything (laughs) okay so just there were three times in the whole movie itself that I I specifically went and leaned to both of you and was like, take off your headphones, I have to tell you something. And for that one, I was like, this is my favorite part of the movie. Watch it. Live it. Love it. And it's because it it really solidifies the theme that the whole idea is your dreams can come true. Mm -hmm. If you work hard, if you believe in yourself. And it's just, she was destined for that. And I just love that that's the idea behind the movie and that we get to see this little girl in her family Mm -hmm. to become this woman who just broke open the Tejano music scene and just, oh, it's so cool. You know what else? There's not really any conflict. I mean, save for, you know, the the major conflict. Spoilers for Selena. Uh, And for real life. It's a true story. Selena Quintanilla was murdered. Yes. Yes. 
So aside from that, which is literally like the and they, end of the they movie. They save it for the last three minutes. Yeah, there's yes. hardly any falling action after it. It's like, that's the end. She died, which is so just tragic. It's yes. so tragic. But as I'm watching it, I'm like, everybody's getting along. The dad isn't like a helicopter dad. Everybody kind of like... The biggest conflict is him disapproving of their relationship. Yeah. Yes. And when they do get married, he's like, I'm glad you did it, you're actually. Right. Like, they all you're just, right. I'm stubborn. Right? You see all her dreams coming true, and you're yeah. like, yes, Selena. <laughs> they support each other, all of them, and there's no, like, drama between the sisters or the brothers or... Nothing. They just... They all want each other to succeed. And I'm like, this is, like, soul food. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Movies don't really happen if there's not any conflict. Like, we don't go to the movies to really see everything working out and people living happy, perfect lives. That's just, like, not entertaining. But this movie is entertaining because you're still rooting for her to get everything that she wants. And what did you say to me, Kayleen? Yeah, I I turned to Courtney probably, like, three... Not to say... I I was thinking this, like, the whole time. But I turned to Courtney at, like, three-quarter mark, probably. And I was like... I kind of wish this was a fictional story because if it was fictional and then this twist ending happened, that would be crazy and amazing. Right. But the fact that it's real life, I'm like, I don't want that to happen. It's too out of the blue. If it was fictional, it'd be like, wow, didn't see that coming in this crazy, like... uh, I thought everything was going to be perfect. Right. But because it's a true story, I'm like, I know this is coming for me. Yeah. Yeah. So you both went into it knowing... The outcome I, that, of it. I didn't know anything about Selena except for the fact that she was a young singer yeah. and that she was murdered very young. And I thought it was by a mourned. stranger. I uh, thought it was. I thought it was by like a crazy fan. Or totally, something. that's what I thought. Crazy fan and fan club president seem like they're not that far off. Yeah. What you guys liked the music? Did you like the music? So I did so like the I, music. I have a couple things. I would say the biggest things about the movie are. So I'll say my downfalls first because yeah, I want to end go for on the it. And I and I'm aware there are downfalls. <laughs> I I I went into this being like on a, not in the same way, of course, but in a similar way to Drop Dead Gorgeous, where I was like, this is very near and dear to Courtney, <laughs> so I'm not allowed to hate it. But when it definitely, I was the same as Kimmy, where when it started, I was like, this is gonna be a bumpy ride. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna punch you. Fucking. <laughs> But it's not like I made you two sit down and watch Madagascar. I'm more laughing at my impression right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was gold. That was so priceless. Um, but no, I. it was mostly because I didn't love young Selena. Um, however, like, the second J-Lo came on screen, I was eating her up. Right. The entire movie, she could do no wrong. That mm-hmm. bob haircut. I know. The adorableness. She even rocked the bob haircut. Right. Every scene with her, I was like eyes peeled at the screen just I couldn't get enough of her I thought Mm -hmm. she was I don't know anything about Selena as a person but I was like you feel like her uh so my other thing was just gonna be that positive and negative is that I loved how they spliced in like once the switch happened to real Selena footage I thought that was great Mm -hmm. however I did think her death was way too abrupt oh yeah so abrupt everything about it happened way too quickly and I was like where'd my catharsis go I didn't (laughs) get her like it was all so quick yeah Mm -hmm. and I really really liked the actors around her like in the hospital room but it was over Music so and I found I found the music distracting because I wanted to see more of their grief. I think I think that's interesting too because uh, I was not alive enough. <laughs> I was a baby 
to to experience what it must have been like to be a fan of this yeah. young singer and mm-hmm. to see her trajectory and then to lose her so suddenly. Mm-hmm. So people who were fans of Selena at the time and who did know and watch her career, they must have probably felt that way. Yeah. If that was so abrupt. Mm-hmm. I literally just saw her win a Grammy. Now this is happening. But I guess the movie mirrored that in real life because the movie came out a year after her death. Wow. That is oh my. so They hopped on fast. that train real fast. But, like, J-Lo, put these on. But I'm happy for that because I think it kept her legacy alive. It really solidified of like, this is what happened. You all maybe didn't know that. And I mean, the movie's so iconic and you, you heard how many people were cheering along to yeah. certain lines yeah. or yelling certain things out. And it just kind of like, that might have been it. Whereas... It could have become all about her murder, I fear. Yeah. yeah. Is that everyone would have been like, that's the one who was murdered. Right. But instead it was like, maybe now people say, that's the J-Lo movie. Right. Uh, which was about her life, not yeah, her death. Because which it is was really all nice. about her life, yeah. Like, that's the first, like, big female Mexican-American artist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which is really amazing. So, yeah. But I get where the catharsis is lost. Yeah, I is. was like, my catharsis. Well, you were shocked into it. at all these other, like, really poignant parts. I'm like, oh, she just wants to get married. Mm-hmm. She just wants to be with Chris. And she just wants to have a big wedding I with liked her Chris. dad. And, yeah. and all that's making me cry. And, she, like, she's like, Mama, want to have babies? And they're crying, mm-hmm. and I'm crying. And I'm like, oh, man. Oh, the man. death part's gonna come up real soon, and then it happened, and I was like, "Oh, like no tears." Yeah, you know, yeah. it happened so abruptly. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess, yeah. yeah, your your point is really valid, Courtney. That it was nonsensical, it was tragic, mm, yeah. it was abrupt in reality. So why shouldn't it be mirrored that way? It's not cathartic when people die like that. When it's so such nonsense, you know, mm. it's. And it I love sucks. that they, we didn't find out anything about Yolanda. Yeah. I don't know who she was to yeah. Selena. I know she was, like, in her business, but who cares? Yeah. Well, I I loved hearing your guys' positive things about it, and I, I can fully respect the negatives that you have, <laughs> and it's funny, too, because it begins with a bumpy ride, <laughs> and it, it ends with a, oh, okay, bye, movie. Um, <laughs> you're the movie. Yeah. So uh, that's okay, because I'm okay. I'm happy with what was that 80% for you totally. guys in the middle. Yeah. Super. All right, let's so move into to what move else we saw. On to the ne- like, uh, let's go to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because we all yes. saw that semi separately. We did. Yes. yes. And that's the other one we all saw together. We um, all did see it together, mm-hmm. yes. I think it's going to be hard to talk about this one without spoilers, so I'm just going to say we're going to spoil it. I was going to say, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Yeah. Once so upon I know. a time in spoilers. <laughs> I mean, we typically don't spoil things this new, but I think it's kind of important. But the ending is what yeah. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I have to say what happens at the yeah. end. Okay. That's my whole hinging on my opinion. Yeah, I don't know how much you and I really talked about it, Kimmy, but Courtney and I talked about it when we went to dinner the other day. Courtney talked to me about it briefly, okay. but I hadn't seen it yet, so she didn't want to oh, spoil it too I much. See. But you saw it with Kayleen. I yes. did. Okay, so I saw it on my own. And then afterwards, you two saw it together. Mm-hmm. And then we've never spoken about it since. Yes. And it's been weeks. Yes. Okay, cool. I mean, I think the consensus is that, vaguely, is that I really liked it. Um, I think I would have to wait a long time before seeing it again. Mm-hmm. Because it is a slow burn, ultimately leading up to one dope-ass thing. Mm-hmm. And then once you get the dope-ass thing, you're like, I had the thing. So <laughs> now I, the movie's <laughs> over. Thank you for ending it then and not giving me three more hours. Yeah, so I I wouldn't rush out to see it again because I saw the thing and I know the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but 
I thought that the payoff was amazing, mm-hmm. and I kind of guessed that something like that would happen, but it just the fact that Tarantino waited for an entire movie before being that... I mean, there was the one, like, Brad Pitt punching the guy at the ranch, but besides that, there was, like, no violence. All we saw of Tarantino oh. was oh, feet, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was Tarantino wise. We saw Dakotas, we saw Margos, we saw Margaret, I think her name is. <laughs> feet, yes, feet, Margaret Qualley. Yeah. Uh, which we were like, I don't care how hot you are, Margot Robbie, don't take your socks off in the movie theater. What are you? <laughs> um, Who do you what... think you are, Margot Robbie? <laughs> yeah, I think that I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like I liked it the most out of you, out of us three. That's oh, I really fine. liked it. You did? Yeah. I really liked the slow burn of it because I didn't know it at the time upon my first watch, but everything was purposeful. And mm. everything means something. It's going to be paid forward later in the movie. And you, I think that's so brilliant because you don't know it as you're watching like it. The flame like the flamethrower. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. I think that, you know, people who come away from it saying that they thought it was boring or whoever, because I I feel like I'm reading a lot of that online. Mm -hmm. Like, it's boring. I don't know why people think it's so great. But it's all not a traditional Tarantino. Yeah. You know? It's not. Not a lot of, I mean, again, not a lot of gore. Not really that aspect, but I just think, like, pacing-wise and, and, like, Mm -hmm. storytelling-wise. It's got his vibe, but it's just different. It's a different kind of taste. I feel like it burns in the way that, at least in my personal opinion, Pulp Fiction burns. Mm. Where I, like, even on my second viewing of Pulp Fiction, I was like, I enjoy this more now, but rewatchability is low. Yeah. So, do I think that it's the best Tarantino movie? Absolutely not. No, and it's interesting because later in this episode we will be talking all about directors. Yeah. Yeah. But I was gonna say... Is it undoubtedly a very well-made movie? Yeah, absolutely, in my opinion, but I got two. So so I liked this one for its performances. I didn't like it for story or for pacing. I liked it for payoff, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I've gotten that with other Tarantino movies because his movies are all about payoff. It's that final showdown because he loves his westerns, and we've we've seen that. So performance-wise, like, Brad Pitt can get it. He did a great job. (laughs) Oh, man. I thought Leonardo DiCaprio did some great stuff. I thought it was just, like, a very intelligently, like, self-aware movie. Like, they made a lot of funny jibes about, like, the entertainment industry and, like, Leonardo DiCaprio cry because a little girl says his acting is the best she's ever seen is fucking brilliant. Like, thank you for being on board, everyone, to do that. Yeah. I just, I really appreciated the end, of course, for the payoff, but just for the moment when you see them all hugging, Mm. because when you see the title card come up, it made me weirdly, not weirdly, because it, it makes sense as a human, but just all of a sudden I felt very emotional mm-hmm. for the fact that those were real people and that I wish it could have been like a that instead. Tale. And it yeah. was a fairy tale, ultimately. Yeah. And it just made me really bummed. That is, especially after talking about Selena. I know. Much, it's yeah. like, wouldn't that have been nice yeah. if this is what we were given? If we and got if, to laugh about the hippies. Right, if good triumphed over... Hippies. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say evil, but like, and Manson is evil. Yeah. Like, uh, I'm so excited to watch Mindhunter tonight and oh, see we're gonna what Hunter. kind of evil we're in store for. But really, the fact that it's these normal, 
Hollywood people, but yeah. celebrities laughing and be like, those crazy hippies. Yeah. It's like, wouldn't that have been nice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wouldn't that have been nice? I know. If, uh, that's it is the poignant, ending. right? You know? Yeah. It's yeah. like, it's a nice wish. To have you know? J.C. Yeah. bring be like, what what happened there? And totally. know that he gets to live. And I, that's just, that's horrible and tragic that that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I have a tiny question that me and Kayleen briefly spoke about with the guys when we saw it, but we didn't really talk about it with you, Courtney. What do you think the significance of having Margot Robbie go to the movies and see herself as the character Sharon Tate mm. watching the real Sharon Tate's footage oh. versus having Margot Robbie DiCaprio's character it. be in his real footage as that character? Well, it's because he's not a real person, and so I right. think less of me thinks it's about symbolism and more about, I'm not going to desecrate Sharon Tate. Yeah. I already changed her life story. Instead, this kind of grounds the audience and reminds us, Sharon Tate was a real person. I'm going to change her story, but that is a real person right there. And I actually liked that. Um, I did too. It it pulled me out a little bit, but I was like, I get what you're doing. And and Marco is just so... I just adore her. You probably watch that and you're like, look how cute she is. She's watching Sharon Tate. Looking around at people loving her. And it just, it makes you um, sympathize with that character in a way of, I find with Tarantino doing that, especially because whatever Leonardo DiCaprio's character's name is, he's a fake person. Mm -hmm. You do all the acting you want, chum, but leave Sharon Tate, Sharon Tate. I don't really know about Sharon Tate as an actress. I don't either. I don't know about her level of fame. I don't know anything about her except for that she was murdered. And that's so unfortunate that she's known for being a murder victim of a horrible, horrible mat and crime and group of people. It's just, it's terrible. And this movie kind of gives her life as a person outside of that. Yeah, that's like what Selena did, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially because it, it, it pulls her away from that tragedy and it says, nope, let's yes. watch this real person. Yeah. Let's see what she was like. And yeah, she was adorable. I loved watching her put on a record. I loved watching her hang out with, um, and like the, the love triangle or whatever it was that was going on right. in her life. And I'm not going to talk about what's his face because he's yucky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but seeing, seeing those people in her life and what that was like, uh, fascinating because mm-hmm. uh, yeah I think Sharon Tate deserves an audience and I I would like to know more about her it made me want to the whole movie made me nostalgic for a time I never experienced yeah and it made me want to watch movies like that yeah, yeah. Cool. cool so lastly on my list for this week is as a lot of you I'm sure know it was the what how many years now five five years since Robin William passed the year that he took his own life my mom actually texted me and told me, and obviously, like, again, like everybody, I was devastated, and I was yeah. like, I don't care what my plans were for the day, I have to watch one of his movies, and so I've just made that a thing, that every year on that day, I watch a Robin Williams movie. Which I've done and as well, and then Courtney's and done, done it with me the, the past, past two years, so this was our third year, so we watched The Fisher King, and neither of us had seen it, and it was amazing, mm-hmm. but we didn't realize how fucking unfortunately poignant it would be. Uh, there's a big plot element of gun violence. Horrible gun violence. Oh. And literally they show mass a really shootings. graphic scene. When they talked about it and we went, oh wow, I had no idea this is what it's about. But then way later in the movie we, we see like 
we witness a mass shooting. Oh graphic. Gosh. Horrible. Graphic. Like, the most graphic. Wow. Easily. And we just were like, I'm sorry, I did not sign up for this today. I signed up for, excuse me, sir, I ordered a Robin Williams <laughs> movie. I, I thought he was a zany homeless man. I didn't know it was like I thought this. he would do voices. Which um, he did, but they were mostly sad. They were, and, and it was also not his, his characteristic Robin Williams. Yeah. Of, of these are 30 voices that I'm doing, because every time he does a movie where it's like, I'm only going to do two impressions. Right. You, you know that it's like, oh, oh it's no. serious. <laughs> so this was your, I felt very uh, vulnerable watching yeah. it. I, I highly recommend I highly it, recommend but just gear I, up. Gear up. It, literally, prepare for an Oscar-worthy movie because yeah. it was nominated for a Three awards and, and oh my gosh, slept on at the Oscars. Jeff Bridges, the yes. fuck were you thinking, Academy? Holy smokes, he was incredible in it. Jeff so good. Bridges. Wow. <laughs> so that was fascinating to watch. And then on to like to top it all off, it just had this feel to it from the performance of Robin Williams. Where especially watching it on the anniversary of his death, I just got this like feeling of how beautiful is it that knowing this whole man's story. And knowing what his life became and how it ended, that we get a character like this. Mm -hmm. Because he's done that so many times. Where you're watching a film and you're like, the amount that this equates to yeah. or connects to your real life now that I know your story. Yeah. Like, this, this character oh. is literally someone for us to laugh at because of his tragedy. Right? Mm -hmm. And, oh, and, and he does it in so many other ways, too, uh -huh. of just, I loved it. I mm -hmm. loved it for that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Aww. That's my, my film list for it's this It's a dark, week. dark movie, though. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, moving into mm. what Kimmy and I saw together. Yes. We watched Stoker, which nice. was... Nice. It's a film that's been Courtney on my nice watch herself. list for ages. Um, I don't have much to say about the movie except for I thoroughly enjoyed it and that it was an exquisite film. Mm. Like, it, every shot is beautiful the production design is incredible i i just was you know bonkers over how beautifully oh, made this movie was seriously pretty indie kind of okay. film but um, what's the oh. premise neil Waskowska's father dies and his brother her uncle comes to live with them immediately after his death which seems a little bit suspicious okay she and her mother have a slightly complex and um off standish yeah a relationship mm. almost like in a competing way okay in mm -hmm. some in some regards time period of the film we believe is present day they make it look like it's not yeah they mm -hmm. make it look like it's not and i think it's just like the culture by which this singular household has grown up and so they're they're very like Victorian almost, oh. and like what era would you say? I would call it fifties. Okay. Like we even see her wearing only saddle shoes oh. to the point where there's like this display of all her saddle shoes that she's owned over the whole of her life. Literally every year for her birthday, she gets a pair of saddle shoes. So it's very fifties, pleated skirts, buttoned up uh, cardigans, and all that stuff. And we're just confused and wondering where and when are we. And then suddenly we see her take a bus to normal school and everyone at the normal school is like, look at this bitch. Oh, so yeah. she's a weirdo. Ever since I've watched it, I've been wanting to dye my hair dark, dark brown. <laughs> well, that's all that we watched this week. Yeah. 
Alrighty, so now we're moving on into the movie-related questions for yeah. this week. Let's do it. So our first question for this round is, name a movie where the director's vision is very clear throughout the film, where while you're watching this film, you can feel the director's influence on the film. Okay, as I've stated on this podcast before, my favorite director is David Fincher, and so my answer is kind of a twofer. I'm excited, because I don't know which movie of his you're going to pick. I am choosing to just do two movies instead of having honorable mentions, because mostly I just want to share fun facts about both of them, because they're directorial fun facts. Zodiac at the Social Network. Oh. I yes. love the Social Network. The way that I see those films are definitely through the lenses and the eyes of David Fincher, because of how meticulous he was in them. Rooney Mara opens that movie, The Social Network, with uh, Jesse Eisenberg, where they're having yeah. that conversation in the bar. It's yeah. like the back and One forth. One of the most incredible movie openings. Yeah. I think it's rumored that there were 99 takes of that. If they had to 99 do the whole takes, thing. only one take needs to believe in you. <laughs> I hate you. Good joke. <laughs> yeah, and I think, again, all rumors, all speculation, all maybe one YouTube video or interview I saw years ago that he ended up using, like, the first one. Ah. Uh, so Rooney Mara, the amount of times that she had to say right. over and over again, dating you is like dating a Stairmaster, it's exhausting. Yeah. And the fact that she had it with that level of commitment every time, and then just the back-and-forth banter, the Aaron Sorkin dialogue all piled up on top of David Fincher's incredible camera work. One other thing from The Social Network, Wardo has to come and burst into the Facebook headquarters, headquarters and he, like throws a laptop that Jesse Eisenberg's character, Mark Zuckerberg, is typing oh, on at the moment. In? Oh, okay, and he picks up the laptop and he chucks it onto the ground. There is a behind-the-scenes footage video of all the laptops they had stacked up on top of one another because David Fincher was like, no, I want a thousand laptops so that we can do this take as many times as I want and he's going to break every single one. And that's where the budget went. All those laptops. All those laptops. And then some of the other answer would be Zodiac. Because, again, his attention to detail. And David Fincher needs to be commended more for his ability to um, digitally enhance movies. Mm. There's this shot of, like, Jake Gyllenhaal's hands because he's, like, a cartoonist and he's drawing. And David Fincher was like, Jake Gyllenhaal's hands are too feminine. <laughs> really? Somebody come in here. I want you to digitally enhance his knuckles so there's hair on them. Are you serious? They didn't just I, get like a handle? What a psycho. is like, those are some lady hands. Someone make his hands more beefy. And they wow. did it. And I just, I love him so much. Um, and that film made Robert Downey Jr. go crazy. Because, like, you heard the Rooney Mara story about how often he would make them redo takes and stuff. He would do that with Robert Downey Jr. in Zodiac, and he would do this thing where in front of him he would delete takes. He would record it digitally, and they would do a take, and Robert Downey Jr. was like, I got this, I'm amazing. And then he would be like, no, and delete the take. And so, to make Sucks. fun of him and to retaliate at the same time, RDJ would um, pee in glass jars and leave them all around the set. I feel like I knew this. A la Howard Hughes. Because mm -hmm. he was like, that's you, David. Mm -hmm. You're Howard Hughes. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my beard. That's my answer. David Fincher. Love Good him answer, so yeah. much. Do you want to go next, Kimmy? I do, and I definitely, I mean, I loved your answer, Courtney. I do feel like I'm going to hijack this a little bit. That's fine. My answer is Synecdoche, New York. And I finally watched it. <laughs> My boss has been begging me to watch it pretty much since we met. Oh. And it 
it it's made by Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman yeah. directed it and he wrote it. And this film, I want to talk about it so much, but there's it's so hard to explain. Yeah. But I'm gonna try. Yeah. This movie, Synecdoche, New York, is the perfect representation of what it's like to be a human being. And I'm watching it and I'm suddenly realized that I've been overcome with this sense of despair. (laughs) Just like what the character is experiencing and it came on so hauntingly that I'm literally like living through the film. It is also very intricately done by Charlie Kaufman. Like, it's just all of your fears about living and life and ailing and losing people and being alone all captured into one film. It's terribly bleak. There's something hopeful about it in a way, too, to know that that feeling is... Universal. It, yeah. It is. You're not alone and feeling lonely. No. There's yeah. this yeah. overwhelming sense of hurtling through life as you watch it, and there's nothing that can stop it, and suddenly you wake up and you're 40 and you've done nothing with your life, and I just don't know how someone could have made that into a film. They, like, took a feeling and somehow just made it a film. Yeah, it's so expanded. Um, I do want to say a couple more things about it, but something that my boss said I think captures the feeling really well is that I haven't experienced another form of art that captured a feeling so tangibly other than maybe a piece of music the way that music uh does when you listen to music you can't help but feel it in your bones on an emotional and physical level and no other thing has made me feel like the way music does besides this film there's one fun fact which i think is just a testament to charlie kaufman's intelligence and um genius really Mm -hmm. this film he quotes has double or maybe triple the amount of scenes that a regular screenplay does and they're really short there's they're just like siphoned in the french scene chart would be off the charts (laughs) (laughs) no it is they're just like slivered in there just to show you like a brief instance of life and i think that's what gives you this hurtling oh feeling yeah because that's how it feels when you look back on your life he also ages it's over multiple multiple years that this film takes place he ages and in one scene he's like i'm this however many years old and then the next scene they're like Kaden, it's been 10 years. Yeah. And it, it happens like that. You're like, excuse me, since when? And it's unfair, and as is life. Anyways, I hope that all of that was generally coherent. I'm in love with the film. Nice. It's not my favorite film. It, am I going to watch it multiple times like I watch Lord of the Rings? No. Lord of the Rings is my favorite film. It's as, as far as, like, entertainment goes. Like, it's my favorite. But I, I do you know, arguably think this is the most well-made film. You know, if you can appreciate all those things that I mentioned, like, you'll understand the artistry of... Of storytelling, my (laughs) goodness. If you can appreciate that life is fleeting and it means nothing, then you'll love it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, um, 
I'm picking a very obvious answer, but to be fair, I don't think I've talked about this movie as much as you could have expected me to, which is so back, back to the, to the future. future. <laughs> back to the future. Um, yeah, you, again, I don't think we've really gushed about our faves too much on this yeah. podcast, but we've, so tell me think, about Back think, to the Future. I think because we're worried that we're only going to talk about that forever. Like, yeah. hey, have you heard of Arrival? <laughs> Let me just push on my glasses and tell yeah. you about Actually, before I picked Synecdoche, I was definitely going to say Lord of the Rings. Really? yeah. <laughs> The reason that I picked it, of course there's many reasons, but I would say the main thing I want to focus on is that in my experience with watching film, this is also just because I know a lot of behind the scenes about this movie, but damn, if a director ever had a vision that he ever followed through with, it was Robert Zemeckis for fucking Back to the Future. Being that they shot for weeks and weeks with a different actor, and he knew... That it wasn't right. Mm-hmm. He he looked at it, and even though it was fine, and it probably still would have been a good film that people maybe even would still like today, he was like, that's not what I want, and that's not the vision, and we have to fix it. I have to get Michael J. Fox. The entire vibe of the film reflects, I think, exactly what he wanted to do of... As many things as there are, you know, like how John Mulaney makes fun of the relationship between Doc and Marty, like as many things as I was thinking between there, the mom and Marty. <laughs> oh, well, that too. Um, but just as many things as there are to, you know, pick fun at from the 80s, you can't deny that he achieved the goal that he wanted. Every single shot of that movie evokes the feeling of the film and propels the story forward And the more that I watch it, the more that I love it. Like, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't get old. It's so rewatchable, and every scene is important. Again, I know a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that I think makes me extra appreciative, but there's a lot of people just look back on it. Maybe some people have only seen it, you know, a couple times, and they think of it as, yeah, that fun movie everybody loves. It's iconic. And, and of course, this is actor and director, but just all of the mannerisms of Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox with everything that they do. It's like, you just walk like Marty. You just do. And that's the quirkiness that Eric just didn't have because naturally he just didn't. And that's okay. doesn't mean he's not a good actor. It just... But there, but again, another behind the scenes. This is a very fact-filled episode. We're so smart, guys. <laughs> oh my god, it's like we've read a book. <laughs> um, but like, there's that the when they did their first table read, that they're all like, "Wow, what a great script! That was amazing! Can't wait to do this movie!" And Eric's just sitting there, and, and Lorraine um, Leah Thompson's like, "What?" And he's like, "It's just so sad that." <laughs> His family doesn't have any of the same memories as him. <laughs> She's like, dude, that's not what it's about. <laughs> it would be like, to, to bring in another Michael J. Fox movie, it would be like about the, the table read for Stuart Little. He'd be like, it's just so sad that he's a rat. <laughs> yeah, all the feelings of a boy. <laughs> that's a great choice. Thank you. Yes. All right. Question number two. Again, these are both questions related to Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, so they will tie into the film that we're explaining. Name a movie that utilizes interviews to tell the story of the film. My answer is I, Tanya. I really respect actors who do biopics and imitate real people 
And not only do these actors do that, but they're also foils of the characters themselves for entertainment purposes. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of taking the mick in a way, Mm -hmm. but still doing it justice where I think those people would be okay with the interpretation. And it's entertaining in a way that might not be as entertaining with just regular documentary style. Yeah. And and it's fun in stuff like that where... Like, at the end, we get to see the real interviews mm-hmm. side by side. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I just picked um, another honorable mention because I, because Courtney and I have the same answer. We've talked about this before, but American Animals is so unique yeah. and blends the interviews of the mm-hmm. real people with this fictional story so seamlessly. If we haven't convinced you to watch it yet, go watch it. We won't spoil it on this one because we have spoiled it in the past. So check that out. Yeah. Courtney and I had the same answer, which is Alpha Dog, and we discussed this before we started the podcast, and she goes, you haven't seen the one I'm going to say. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to say Alpha Dog, and she got very mad. (laughs) I I just have a weird memory of you being like, oh, I've never seen that. Cool. Is it a good movie? (laughs) And I'm excited to hear, like, our different takes on it, because, um, like, I'm sure you related to the characters differently than I did, or, like, Mm -hmm. maybe you had your faves, because, like, my favorite was Christopher Marquette, who is, um, the sweet, spoilers for Alpha Dog, he is the sweet other young man who is is taken out into Bakersfield in the dead of night to commit this crime mm-hmm. and he's the one who runs away gotcha he's from Barry Kimmy oh oh yeah that's Christopher Marquette and aside from him I just remember really loving some some jokes that were in that movie like everything Justin Timberlake said was hysterical everything that Ben Foster did was thrilling and exciting mm-hmm. and like what is this crazy brother gonna do I don't know what yeah. to expect from him ben shit on your an, floor in, right just a seriously underrated actor and I, I love him and so I remember Alpha Dog was the first thing I saw him in and just just this relationship of um, I'm your half brother I'm the troublemaker yeah you have this perfect family now but of course it's not and yeah. of course um What's going to ensue when, when a young boy runs away from home mm-hmm. and, and your brother is wanted? That, I love Alpha Dog. And that's like the first movie that I remember utilizing interviews in that way where mm-hmm. up until I saw, and because we were not young, but like younger when we saw it, that up until I saw Bruce Willis, I was wondering if the interviews were real or fake. Oh. And then mm-hmm. I realized they were fake and that just kind of blew my mind because I knew it was based on a true story. So I was like, wow, the, the meta... <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Because it's, it's also not... I, I had seen mockumentaries by that point in my life, mm. and I had liked them, but this is flipping that on its yeah. head and being really upsetting. It's almost in a... Not in the same way, but in a Laramie Project kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah definitely. I think my standouts from this film are that it was the first time I'd seen Anton in anything, mm-hmm. and that... I mean, this is always what I tie him to now is this film. Oh, same. Justin Timberlake is just phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, he really is. He's a great actor. Just the way that everything unfolds, and it's even sadder that it's a true story, it's like, if it really went down as similarly as it did Mm -hmm. in the movie, that didn't need to happen. And the fact fact that they thought that it needed to happen is heartbreaking. Oh, man. And the fact that he was having fun. He was having fun living this life that wasn't you know, his real life. And the most killer thing of it, too, is 
I think it's like the tagline for it. It's either 42 or 49 or something. It's like a kidnapping. Oh, yeah. 49 witnesses. Yeah. And, and still, they say, and they tell the story by like witness by one, witnesses, witness two. Because they go to a party and it's like all these people and he's literally bragging. He says, they kidnapped, they kidnapped me. me. My brother owes them money. Yeah. You know, I'm just, again, like the hard cut between the whimsical is not the right word, but the, the carefree, the carefree nature yeah. of the first two-thirds of the movie mm-hmm. contrasted with the end of the gruesome yeah they don't know they don't see a way out mm-hmm. and so much so that even their parents are covering for yeah. them and all of this goes down mm-hmm. tragic Alrighty, well those were our questions so i think wow. it's time to get into your predictions for the movie okay i let them watch a trailer yeah well i still literally don't know anything about it by watching the trailer <laughs> <laughs> Something about how Sam Rockwell works for the CIA, but also he produces TV shows? And it's a true story. I was going to say... And it's a true story? Okay, I was just going to say, it'll help if I say that this is based on a book that Chuck Barris wrote about himself, which is the guy who created the dating game and the gong show and the newlywed game. And so he says in the trailer, blah, 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 my name's Chuck, I've killed 30 people leading us really strongly, pulling us by the arm to suggest that he's like a serial killer yeah. who is secretly killing people whilst also being like ABC's hottest executive. <laughs> yeah. But I don't believe that because I felt very lied to during the trailer. I felt I the did. whole trailer well, was being like, it's this thing and this thing and this thing. <laughs> so I think really it's that he was in the military and he, he killed people overseas as he was forced to do. Well, I also think... I'm glad that you said the lied to thing because when he says I've killed whatever 30 people, I think that he might just be saying that and isn't directly responsible. Like he didn't hold the knife, you know, for some of these deaths that he was somehow connected to a death and feels responsible for that amount of deaths, but isn't like the one committing the actual crime. Okay. Yeah. Either way, I don't think he he shot 30 people point blank and yeah. and took their lives. I don't think he's a killer in that that's what he he's bloodthirsty and he went out and did that. Yeah. I think it's that he inadvertently did it in the way that maybe you're saying like I feel responsible because yeah. that bus full of bus drivers crashed. <laughs> like he was in the <laughs> room really when they said press the red button but he didn't actually press the button, you know. It sounds like he did though. <laughs> Anyways, um so he he has quote, killed people. It was a real trolley problem. Yeah, he's he's trolley problems and trolleys, and (laughs) he is skilled in the art of soldier. (laughs) So so the CIA, but they don't call themselves the CIA, they call themselves like a defense initiative, and he's like, like the CIA, and they're like, no! And they slap him across the face. (laughs) They recruit him to become one of their operatives and to do spy stuff with Julia Roberts. So, yeah, I think really it's, it's, it's one of those movies uh-huh. where it's so unbelievable that they're like, but that happened. Uh-huh. And you yeah. have to sit there and be like, I really have to accept that? <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's one of those based on a true story movies where at the beginning of the movie it started and it says, based on a true story. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> right? I really don't know what to expect from this. I'm super excited to hear about it Me and too. to watch Yay. it. The trailer was enticing. I'm for sure going to watch Yay. it after you explain it. Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm um, so okay. Far. Well, if you don't have any more predictions, I have a question. Okay. My question is, 
And because I watched this on a DVD, I paused it and clocked it because I wanted it to be accurate. At oh. what minute mark do you think Sam dances? One I mean, minute. it's it's multiple times, but when do you think it is for the first Either time? Either six minutes okay. in or an hour and six minutes wow. in. Wow. What do you think, Kimmy? 39. 39? So you would be closer, Courtney. It's 14. 14 minutes in? Yes. Nice. <laughs> That's pretty short. Yeah. It's pretty short. I just... Ugh. I thought they might save it. Okay. Before I actually start talking about the film, I just want to talk about a couple of fun things. Mm-hmm. For listeners, I got this DVD specifically hoping there would be a lot of cool special features and information, and there was. So... I'm going to have a lot of commentary during this, and if you're wondering how I know these things, it's because of that. And I feel very proud because this is the first time probably in this whole podcast that I didn't look a single thing up on the internet. I learned it all from the DVD. Nice. Just from various stuff they had on there, so I'm really excited. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff with George Clooney. There's this part where he talks about that a lot of big-name stars wanted Sam's part, but he liked Sam the best and, like, couldn't picture anybody else doing it. And he was like, but I still want people to come see this movie. And Sam isn't, like, an A-list actor. And so he cast Barrymore and Julia Roberts alongside in order to still be able to cast him. Because Mm. he's like, this way I can still have the the Chuck Barris that I want and people will still be drawn to the theater. Anyway. Uh, another thing I really, really liked is that in the behind-the-scenes stuff, George Clooney often calls him Sammy, and I was like, I call him Sammy, and I know, I know I don't know him, but I'm glad that people actually call him that. I think it's adorable. Okay, movie time. The movie opens with an interview with Dick Clark, and he's talking about Chuck Barris, the guy who invented the newlywed game, the dating game, and the gong show, which we will get to. So Dick Clark is talking about how he wouldn't want to be Chuck Barris because he seemed really unhappy. Hmm. Now cut to... And also because you're Dick Clark, so it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Your life seems pretty good. It just seems yeah, really not. cheap to be like, oh, it's me, Margot Robbie. I'm so happy that I'm not Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> Must be hard. She seems unhappy. <laughs> um, and then the, the actual fictional... Well, the actual, um, what's the right word? Real life version? The narrative portion? The narrative portion of the film kicks off with naked Sam Rockwell. Nice. We, we never see his penis. A lot of Sam Rockwell butt. Like, so much in this movie. Like, so much butt. So, we have him standing in a hotel room. He's got a long-ass beard, long-ass hair. He's standing butt-naked staring at a television. He's a real Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes right there. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> So he's, he's looking at the TV, all of a sudden, Drew Barrymore's character comes knocking on the door, and she's crying, and she says that she found him because the note he wrote her was on hotel stationery, and she's basically saying, you need to come, and you need to marry me, and he is not acting responsive, hmm. then it cuts away. I forget exactly what year it is, but we kick it back to the past. It's the beginning of our narrative. It's Sam Rockwell... He's young, just in real life and in the movie. Seems very apparent that his only goal in life is he's just trying to get laid. And it's him trying to get at all these women. Pretty slimy-like. Like, he reminds me a lot of in Fosse Verdon when Bob Fosse starts to get slimy and it's, like, borderline 
yikes, I'm not going to be on your side anymore type of slimy. It's yeah. not quite like that in this movie, but you just get that kind of vibe from him that mm-hmm. he's, like, not the best guy. He ends up, there's a kind of a montage of this. He ends up getting kicked out of a bar for being belligerent or something, and it's late at night, and he stumbles over to where they where they have all the, the like, old school TVs in the window, and they're on. Oh, a department store, like an electronics department store. Yeah. It was, like, a one-room shop. Exactly. <laughs> And there's all these TVs, and he's watching the, the TV shows, and he decides, that's what I want to do. I want to go, and I want to work for NBC. So he goes to New York, and he's like, I'm going to get myself a job as an NBC page. And this is when we see our first one-shot of the movie, which they coin, they, they call them oneers. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's a like an industry-wide thing, but they everyone on the set of this film called them oneers because they have a lot of them. So, there's this cool shot where he he arrives in New York and he's in the NBC building and he there's a tour guide, this woman tour guide who's leading a group around talking about the different shows and the camera follows her down the entire first floor tour. And then it pans back the other way, and by the time that it gets back, Sam has changed outfits, and now he's running a tour. Love it. So it's it's a passage of time, and now he works there, and he does it. Some other some other um, NBC stuff happens. It shows him working there, trying to get up the ladder. Uh, he ends up sleeping with that other tour chick. Yeah. They yeah. end up like banging, I think frequently. He comes to her place one day and says that he got fired from NBC. And she's staring at the television and seems pretty distraught about this, and then tells him that she's pregnant. He's obviously very taken aback and freaks out and runs off to the bar to go drink his sorrows away. And he's talking to this guy. Stand up, dude. Yeah. And he's talking to this guy at the bar about all his woes, and it ends up leading to an argument. And the two of them are having this argument, and... They end up splicing the argument in the bar with his argument with the girlfriend. So she'll say, like, I think he says something to her, like, um, how could you let this happen? And she goes, fuck you. And then in the bar, he says, fuck you back to the guy. And the guy oh. insults him, and he responds from the hotel room to the girl. So it's, That's so cool. like, parallel of these two arguments happening. And then he ends up getting punched in the face at the bar, and both of the scenes are over. Ends up being that she was not pregnant, she just missed her period, but uh, then they end up breaking up. We now get our second interview. It's with J.P. Morgan, this woman who was on the Gong Show, which again, we don't know anything about at this point in the movie, but she was a, she ends up being like one of the quote judges on the Gong Show. And she says that Chuck is a prick, but he has a good heart. Pretty much what she says. Mm-hmm. Chuck now got himself a job in Philadelphia, which I think is where he's from, on as Dick Clark's personal assistant on American Bandstand. And oh. the year now is 1961. We have this scene here where it's showing you the, the whole behind the scenes of him working at American Bandstand. And they have him... He's off stage, but he's like kind of in the wings where he can see what's happening on stage. So you can see kind of the, you know, he's in the focus of the frame, but in out of focus is the two people in the show. Mm -hmm. And on the monitor that he's looking at backstage is the actual footage from the show. So there's the actual footage that he's watching, but then the people that are out of focus are doubles who are having to mimic exactly what we're watching on the screen. Yeah. 
Well, so, intricate. Yeah. Right? We get a scene now where he's at a, it looks like a, like a carnival, and he's on a Ferris wheel, and it leads into back on the Dick Clark show on American Bandstand, I think it still is. He ends up saying that he wrote the song that's playing. Some, some guy is singing this song that Chuck Barris wrote. It's called Palisades Park. It's really fun, and it's a song that he wrote basically about, like, getting frisky and falling in love at the fair. And he's, <laughs> he's backstage, and Maggie Gyllenhaal is there. Cute. And she works for this show as well, and we get this really fun moment where he mansplains to her what a pilot is. Oh. And she's like, yeah, I work in television. And then he goes on and on about no. how he's like... Well, I wrote this song that's playing right now, and, oh, I think that I'm going to make a game show, and it's going to change the world. Like, the future is game shows. And she seems super not into him, <laughs> but now we smash cut, like, his his talking hasn't even ended, and the scene has changed, and they're fucking in her apartment. Oh. But she seems really not into it. So I don't really know what, what made that happen, but they were having sex in his apartment, and he leaves the bedroom and goes to get, uh, I think he's looking for something to drink in her fridge. So he walks out, and he's, like, rummaging around in the fridge, so we're just looking at his butt. And all of a sudden, Drew Barrymore walks in. You guys, this is, like, I feel like this could have been a fun question, too, but I didn't feel like it was a big enough part of the movie to go there. But this is one of the sexiest not-sex scenes I think I've ever seen. Oh. <laughs> that's about to happen. Mm-hmm. So he's standing there, and he gets shocked because he's naked and didn't know anyone else lived there, I don't think. And she walks in, and he kind of, like, hides himself behind the fridge door, and he's standing there looking at her, and, and she's like, oh, you must be with whatever her roommate's name is. Oh, you must be with so-and-so. He's like, oh, yeah, like, haha, sorry, and... And she's like, oh, are you thirsty? And he goes, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love a beer. And she fucking comes up to the fridge so that all that's between them is the door. <laughs> and she reaches her hand around because the beers are on, like, one of the, the shelves. He, like, moves so that she can put her hand in to grab the beers. Wow. But it's, like, full-on touching, like, his abdomen. And <laughs> she grabs the beers. And I imagine the cold beers, like, touch his bare skin. And he's like, what the fuck? And and she's like, here you go, and gives him a beer. And then she goes, what's it like to, to have sex with Maggie Gyllenhaal? <laughs> whatever her name is. And he's like, I mean, yeah, it was fine. It's whatever. And she goes, yeah, I think I've, I've like, had sex with most races by now. And she starts talking about all the different races she's had sex with. And she goes, what are you? What? And he's like, I'm a Jew. And she's like... Oh, I've had one of those, like, <laughs> and they, they're just going on and on, and she's so playful and silly, and he's obviously super into her because of how nonchalant she's talking about all this stuff. Yeah, and then she she's saying, like, how she doesn't really get why people do long-term relationships, like, she just likes to fool around and he agrees or whatever, and then she goes, we can ball if you want, <laughs> and he's like... I mean, that'd be good. Like, Debbie does... Her name's Debbie. There it is. He says, that'd be good. Debbie doesn't seem right. And they are kind of, like, laughing and stuff. Wow. This scene is so well acted because they're both just, I think, slightly... Not uncomfortable, but the fact that this is all happening so fast and they just can't stop giggling and, like, trying to feel each other out to see if this is gonna happen. Anyway, then it smash cuts and we get a montage of them, like 
flirting and having sex and like this is this is actually when we see Sam dance for the first time is mm. in this little montage and mm. they ha- they dance together and this whole montage is to that song Palisades Park. At the very end of this montage it ends on her being in a bathtub and he's getting ready for work, he's doing his tie and stuff and she's going on and on about some dream that she had and he could not care less. And it's clear that he thinks because they're having a conversation that it's getting too serious. <laughs> and she's like, hey, why aren't you listening to me? I can tell you about my dreams if I want to. It's not that big of a deal. As she's saying this, he's like, yeah, no, like, I get it. <laughs> but then she continues and he looks kind of irritated. And the camera this whole time is zooming in on his face. And it goes all the way up to his eyes. So all that's in the framer is his face and this kind of light goes on in his eyes. And while this is happening, he's actually on a turntable that turns him around so that while the camera is on his face, now he's in a new wow. area of the soundstage. So when it zooms out, he has the whole prop for the show, The Dating Game, in his hands, and he's in the room to pitch The Dating Game. So that's a one shot also. That's super cool. Um, so then he's got the little figurines that you guys saw in the trailer where he's pointing at him and he says, you know, the girl asks the guys questions, but she can't see them. And then she picks one to date and we pay for their date. That's it. That's the show. And they're like, yeah, we like it actually. So we're going to give you money to do a pilot. He leaves and he tells Penny and he's so excited and it's awesome. There's this cute montage of them like again, another one-shot sequence of them going back and forth over what the game looks like and them celebrating. Pretty much as soon as this ends, the network says, oh, like, yeah, that was fine, but we're actually, we're not going to air the dating game. We're going to air this show called Hootenanny. I have no idea what that show's about. <laughs> dating game with, is a hit, though. They go with Hootenanny. Wow. So not the dating game. Now we have our next interview. It's with this guy named The Dancing Machine. And he says that Chuck had this personality where he could convince you of anything and you would want him on your side in a fight. Now we get this flash to Chuck Barris is being kicked out of a bar for fighting. It seems like he's always getting into shenanigans at bars. He's now approached... if you will. Hootenannies, if you will. <laughs> yeah, it's just a show where they film bar fights. <laughs> it was actually also a Chuck Barris show. He just didn't know he was on it. Yeah. Um, he now gets approached for the first time by Jim Bird, which is George Clooney. Uh, George Clooney says, you know, I've been following you for a while. I can teach you how to kill a man, and also, you'll make a lot of money. And when he approaches him, Sam, of course, is a little bit drunk, and he's leaving the bar. He's like, you're crazy, man! And he's walking away. And they purposefully made the shot so that Sam had to walk a certain distance away and stand on an exact mark so that George Clooney's character was in the background and it looked like he was a devil on his shoulder because of the like the exact distance away that he walks from him. Ah, filmmaking. See, it's filmmaking! But it's just like... Well, especially for your directorial debut. It's yeah. like, who do you think you are? George Clooney? Get yeah. out of here, George Clooney! Yeah. So that happens, they, he ends up pulling him, not pulling him, but convincing him to come into the bar. This is that hilarious part of the trailer, which I love this scene with the two of them, but it's when he, he says like, what, like the CIA or something, and he has a mouthful of food, and he like, 
bah! like that, and yeah. like, his, like food flies out of his mouth, and he's just so ridiculous, whereas Clooney is so purposefully got a n- film noir vibe, oh. and he's got that mustache, and there's always like, anytime that he's doing the CIA stuff, there's always swanky music playing, like jazz, <laughs> and, exactly like that, and uh, so he's just so cool and collected, and Sam's such a goofball. And he says, like, what, the CIA or something, and laughs really loud. And then Jim Bird does this cool little, like, look over his shoulder, and he says, you need to be discreet, and looks over his shoulder. But he doesn't move his head at all, just his eyes. And then Chuck gets really nervous and looks over his shoulder and gets really serious, and he's like, huh? And uh, then this is kind of when he convinces him, no, I work for the CIA, I want you to come work for me. What we do here is we quell the rise of communism. Why suddenly George Clooney, CIA agent, out of all the people in the world, deciding on Chuck to be doing this business? He asks him that, too. And he says, you fit the profile. And he goes, what's the profile? He goes, the profile, you fit it. (laughs) And he, like, won't tell him. Weird. So we don't get to find out why he's chosen? We'll see. Okay. But right now he's, and he's... I, I don't want to call him dumb, because he's not dumb, but he's just very goofy and kind of a little bit go with the flow, so he's like, okay, sure, I'll be a secret agent, he says that. He's like, oh, ooh, that sounds like fun. Now he's on his first mission. He's in Mexico with Jim Bird. it's just the two of them, and this is where we have the first kill. I think there might actually be multiple people that he kills, but they don't show very much of it, and then they go back to him with Jim Bird after everything is over and Jim is saying no everything you're doing is fine like this is morally sound because we're doing something good for our country you like it so now we get a scene where Chuck is back at his apartment by himself and he's puking in the bathroom holding the gun in his hand that he you know supposedly used on that the people in Mexico He's puking in the bathroom, all of a sudden Penny bursts in the front door, and he's like, ah, shit, and he, you know, flushes the toilet and runs to the door, and he's standing in the doorway of the, from the bathroom to the living room, and he's holding the gun behind the wall so that she can't see it, and it's this cute little sequence where she's, she's so bubbly, she's so Drew in this movie, she's so bubbly and so, such an antithesis to his personality, And uh, she talks about how she went to San Francisco and had the time of her life. And she's like, you and I should move there together. It's amazing. Everyone just loves each other and is so free. (laughs) And she kind of, like, stepped back and she's dressed differently than before. She goes, oh, I'm a hippie now. And and he's like, oh, that's cool, Penny, whatever. And she goes into the other room and he drops his gun behind, like, the, the heater so that she won't find it in the bathroom. Um, now... He, he walks into the other part of the apartment, and one of his walls, which was plain dark green, is covered in, like, hippie-looking paintings. And he's like, what happened over here? She goes, oh, I painted it. And he's like, cool. And she goes, oh, also somebody called for you while you were gone. Uh, Larry Goldberg. And he's like, Larry Goldberg, which is the guy who oh. gave him the money to make the pilot. And so he immediately calls him back. As soon as Larry Goldberg picks up the phone, Sam then walks, okay, to where that wall is supposed to be, but there's no wall there. He's walking into the office of Larry Goldberg. 
So he's on the phone in his apartment, but behind him in the background is Larry Goldberg telling him the dating game got picked up and it's going to be on the air. Um, They're not actually having a conversation face-to-face. They're both acting like they can't see each other, you know, Mm -hmm. but they're in the same room now. And that's very interesting. And as they're talking, Penny dances through the frame between (laughs) both of them. So it's as if she's in neither room. And then uh, Sam walks back over, and he's so excited from the phone call because he got what he wanted. He's, like, you know, throwing his hands in the air. He's so stoked, and he puts the phone down, and then Penny ends up dancing her way back into the room, and they dance together, and then they're back in front of the wall with all the paintings on it. Wow. It's just, like, the, the amount of time they put into making these sets almost like a theater space because they wanted to do shots that look like that is insane. George Clooney's character ends up showing up on the set of The Dating Game, but it's after hours, and so, like, all the lights are pretty dim in the studio, and he's kind of silhouetted in the dark, and he sneaks up on Chuck, and Chuck freaks out, and he's like, what are you doing here? They haven't seen each other since Mexico, and he says, you know, you need to come back. You need to do more work for me, and he says, nope, I did not like that. I don't want to do it again, and he goes, I know that you want this show to work out, so I'll help you if you help me. Like, I can help you make this show take off. He's like, I don't think so. And Jim says, I got the perfect plan where rather than sending the winners of the game, so rather than sending the girl whatever guy she picks on a date, why don't we send them on a romantic getaway? And he's like, the studio would never let me do that with t- back in that day with two unmarried people. Like, we can't just yeah. send them off somewhere together. And he goes, no, you would go as a chaperone. And that way I can send you wherever we have a mission. So then we would say, you know, like, you need to kill someone in this country. Wow. And we're going to send them there and you'll be with them as a chaperone so you can sneak away to go do that. It's going to be really funny when they're like, you've won a trip to the Ukraine. <laughs> exactly, Courtney. <laughs> um, but last week's people got to go to Costa Rica. You're going oh. to Estonia. <laughs> um. So, (laughs) I'm so glad you said that. That's funny. Um, Yeah, so Chuck realizes that's uh, the most perfect plan he's ever heard. Let's do that. Now we get a bunch of clips of the dating game and what it's like and what it's like for them to be interacting with each other and the chemistry and this and that. Now we have a fun little game for you guys to play. It's called Guess the Two Cameos. Yay! There are two... Con- the, the joke here is that the girl is... There's three contestants, right? There's the girl... Well, there's the girl, and then there's the three guy contestants. So there's two guys who are very obviously conventionally attractive. Those are our cameos. And then there's the third guy who's conventionally not attractive, but he's the one saying all the right things. So the joke is that everybody's like, she's going to be with the not hot one. So she's not picking Brad Pitt. That is one of them. Of course it is. <laughs> and then the other one. And they actually That's who it fucking is! <laughs> <laughs> I know that they're friends with George Clooney. Right. Yeah, that's exactly Sorry, what it is. Sorry, Kimmy, I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel really bad. <laughs> I just, like, I, I was going to give you clues and I didn't expect it to take you long, but like, wow. <laughs> Are those the only ones? Yeah, that's it. I was like really taken aback when I first saw it because the, the people are kind of laughing at the monitors and I'm like, what's the joke? Are the other guys really hot? And then it shows them. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and they're just, they're like, I hope she picks me. <laughs> yeah, it's really cute. 
Um, then it's our first couple to win. They're going to Helsinki. (laughs) (laughs) Now we have another interview. It's with the unknown comic. That's his name because he's a regular on the gong show, but his bit is that he wore a bag over his head. So he has like a, like a big paper bag over his head just with eyes and I think maybe a mouth cut out, but you don't, you can't tell who he is. So that was his name is the unknown comic. Um, And even in these interviews, he's still wearing it, because I think people still don't know who he is. Hmm. He says in the interview that some people thought Chuck could turn on them at any time. We now have him in Helsinki with the couple, (laughs) and they are not getting along. Doesn't really matter, but that's just like a kind of a running joke the whole time that he's there, is that they aren't getting along. He is gonna go meet Julia Roberts, but he doesn't know what she looks like. He just knows that she's gonna be sitting at a booth and she's gonna stick her foot out to imply, like, this is, I'm at this booth. <laughs> and he's supposed to approach and say, like, I think it's, what is it? Helsinki is wonderful this time of year, isn't it? And then she says something back to him that's code or something. That doesn't, none of those things seem like very distinct enough code, like, actions, you know? Like, like anyone could say you know, that. Yeah, like, a code word is like, you know, xylophone. Not like, <laughs> yeah, plate. The peanut butter sandwich crossed the street this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, that's just like what Dwight did when he became manager of the office. Where it's like the tea in Nepal mm-hmm. is very hot. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, what's funny is that they don't actually explicitly tell us all of that. We just kind of get that implied as the scene goes on. But he enters this bar, and there's. It's like a regular looking pub, but there's this cool middle section with these two or three really sick booths that are almost encapsulated. Like you almost feel like you're trapped in the booth and they're the whole seat inside the booth is red. It's very intimate and kind of darkly lit again with that film noir vibe. Yeah. Swanky music's playing again. And he sees a, a woman sitting there and her foot is sticking out and he sits down with her and he says... Helsinki's wonderful this time of year, isn't it? And she's like, yeah, it is. And, like, starts flirting with him. And then he goes, uh... And he looks down at the other booth, and there's another woman with her foot sticking out. And he goes, excuse me. And then he just leaves her and goes to the other booth. And then he says, Helsinki's wonderful this time of year, isn't it? And then she says whatever she's supposed to say. And Julia Roberts comes out of the shadows with her beautiful face and her sick-ass hat. Of course. And um, they talk about... Whatever it is he's supposed to do, she gives him the file. He ends up going to another location to go give somebody some money or something. He's back at the hotel now. Again, they never tell us explicitly what any of these cases are. We just see glimpses of it. But the next thing that we see is Sam, and uh, he's got something in his hand, and he's in the bathroom, and he covers it in Vaseline, it is now implied he is shoving it up his ass. <gasps> yeah. Whatever it is. Ow. Yeah, he's got to sneak something somewhere up his ass. And then he leaves the bathroom. He's, like, washed his hands, so he's, like, drying them off or whatever. As he leaves, Julia Roberts is there in the dark, and she clicks a lamp on that's right next to her to take her face out of the shadows. <laughs> and he's like, oh, snap, you're here. And she's like, yeah, it's me. And they... <laughs> they ended up having this, like, romantic dinner, and it's very, like, sexy lighting. It's in front of a fireplace, and they're just having, like, some, I don't know, dumb, sexy conversation. And he asks why she came, and she's like, 
don't know, I guess you're kind of cute in a homely sort of way. And it gets kind of lonely out here as a secret agent. And he's like, uh-huh. And then there's just them looking at each other back and forth. And then she knocks everything off the table. And he crawls across the table to get to her. And they start making out. And she licks his entire face. (laughs) And I guess she asked if she could do that. She's like, George, is it cool if I lick his old face? He's like, do what you gotta do, Julia. Did she ask Sam? (laughs) (laughs) Sam's like, excuse me, what? Wait, what? What did she say? Sam's up or whatever. And George goes, do it. I love it. Love it, sweetie. And they're like making out. And he goes, hold on a second. I gotta go take care of something in the bathroom. And she goes, leave in the microfilm. Ew. (laughs) And that's the end of the scene. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He's back in New York for the dating game. And when he gets there, he like walks into the studio or his office or whatever. Again, all the lights are off. Lights are always off in this movie. And some chick whose face we don't see in the dark is like, the hitman's arrived. He's like, I'm sorry, what? And she goes, the hitman. And she turns the lights on, and a bunch of people from behind the office pop out. And they're like, the newlywed game just got picked up. Like, you know, all these hits, man, or something like that. And he's like, oh. And then they're, like, partying off screen. And as they're partying kind of in the background, like, yay, now I have two shows that got picked up. In the focus of the shot is, I think, real footage from the newlywed game, and it's, like, really inappropriate things that people have been saying on these games, which is pretty funny, because that's kind of something that, as a kid, I was always like, people weren't inappropriate back in the day, never, and then you see this stuff, and you're like... They slept in separate twin beds. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's like, people were always, like, dirty. Now that he has two shows on the air, I guess he's probably making bank, so he and Penny are gonna go move to L.A., So they're driving, and they're just having a grand old time in sunny California, and they end up going and, like, picking out a house together, and there's this cute part where she tries to carry him across the threshold, but she's, like, too weak and can't quite get him up, like, she's gonna drop him, and then he just, like, grabs her and throws her over his shoulder, and they, like, prance into the house together. Yeah. Again, another shot of him naked in the hotel room that we keep splicing back to. Oh, oh, it's the same shot. Same shot. Okay, I thought. In my mind, he's just, like, naked in every scene. Oh, no. I mean, it is the... They keep going back to that scene where he's naked the whole time, so, yes. Now we have a voiceover, though, over this, which we've had some earlier that I didn't mention, but we have a voiceover of Sam Rockwell saying that he doesn't want to get married, but he does love Penny in his, in, quote, his own way. He says that more than once. And he says that he just doesn't think that he really likes marriage because his parents didn't ever seem happy and the newlywed game kind of reflects his distaste in marriage because he says that to him it proves that people will sell out their spouse for a new washing machine Mm. because at the end of the game you just like win a cool new appliance it's kind of like price is right type prizes but you get one and then we get a cut to he and penny are at their house and they're like drinking they probably just had dinner and they're playing scrabble and so cute. She, God, she's adorable in this movie. Oh. I love her in this movie. She spells out interpret on the board. And she's like, interpret. And he goes, it's interpret. And she's like, oh, do you have an R I can borrow? Oh. <laughs> and he's like, you're cute. And she's like, I'm always cute. Don't distract me. And they're having this little back and forth. And she kind of like is looking at the board and putting the letters on as she's saying this. But she's like, 
I think we should get married. And he looks a little taken aback, and she's kind of trying to approach it in a nice way, but she's like, you know, we spent all this time together, and we're really happy, and we've been messing around for a long time, and like, and I'm nothing like your mother, and like, and then he gets really put off by that. And he's like, what the fuck is that supposed to mean? And he's super harsh with her. And just the way that he starts to speak to her in comparison to how cute they were being a second ago. And I just started thinking, like, all three of us, because we've been friends for so long, like, we have all definitely had at least one guy that we've dated who is just like this, where it's like, the way that they say things, you're just like, you're not a good person. So he's gaslighting her? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's just making her feel so bad. Like, how dare you bring that up? That's not right of you to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, why would you say that about my mom? Like, kind of making it like, we were having a good time and you ruined it. Like, he doesn't say that, but that's how it feels. You asked for marriage. Now I'm upset. Now I'm upset. And now your feelings don't matter and she's trying to fix it. It's very also reminiscent of, like, in Midsummer when they're having the argument about him leaving. Yeah. And it's just super sad, and then he's like, I need a fucking drink, and he leaves. Yeah, so it's really sad, and then he leaves, and he's going to some bar. At the same time, it's like, then we start to see things from his point of view, because now we're just with him, and he is our protagonist, and it's, he's like, I couldn't breathe in there, like, I gotta get out of here. It's like, I'm still not on your side, but it's like, especially because now she's up there just wishing she hadn't said anything, but there's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with what she just said, Mm -hmm. and she doesn't even have you there. Like, she feels like it's her fault that you left, and he doesn't know what to do. I just felt very much in this moment that we've just started to get enough glimpses about him where even though you're still rooting for him, it feels kind of like how it felt to watch Fosse Verdon, where Mm -hmm. you're like, man, you're starting to show me too many qualities about you that are dislikable. Like, what about you is redeemable? The fact that you're Sam Rockwell. (laughs) The fact that you're played by Sam Rockwell. Um, Anyway, yeah, he goes to the bar. That's all over now. The year's now 1970, and he has decided to take on a new mission. So the mission is going to be in West Berlin, Germany, and we get this hilarious scene of this couple winning the dating game, and they're like, you're going to West Berlin, Germany, and they're bouncing around, they're so stoked, and then they go, wait, what? (laughs) And then it cuts, and they're in the fucking snow in, like, huge-ass coats, and they're so upset. It's hilarious. Um, Don't go near that wall over there. (laughs) Yeah. Patricia's there again because she's like on all these missions with them. I don't really know what her job is, but she's always the girl with the files and she gives people files. Mm-hmm. Um, so she says, Your next mission is to assassinate Hans Colbert, whoever the fuck that is. Hans Gruber? <laughs> yes, Hans Gruber. <laughs> Stephen Colbert? <laughs> How old would he have been in the 70s? You guys know who Rutger Hauer is, right? He just recently passed away. I don't know who that is. He was the guy in the original Hitcher as the Hitcher. Okay. Or not, yeah, as the Hitcher. And then he was oh, also... he's from... Blade Runner. Blade Runner, yeah. yeah he's I did the, know that he's he the Tears in the Rain guy from okay. Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he just recently passed, and he's in this movie, which I thought was cool. Um, he's like... He ends up kind of being... Chuck Barris's partner on this mission. They hang out in the car for a long time, kind of doing a stakeout on this guy they're supposed to kill. Oh, this guy's name is Keeler. Rutger Hauer is playing Keeler. 
And he seems just kind of like, he thinks killing's really fun. Like, he just kills this guy on skis because he thought it was fun, and then he takes a picture with him. Like, <laughs> isn't that funny? And then Chuck is like, alright, gotta go do my mission. And we have literally the swankiest music you've ever heard. It's like, wow, 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 like really slow. I'm doing like the Annihilation song. (laughs) 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 I'm picturing the Annihilation song. Sure, let's picture that. I'm I'm picturing um, fucking, I got five on it from us. (laughs) (laughs) Neither, but yeah. It's actually both played at equal volumes on top of each other. <laughs> Which makes the perfect swank song. So, yeah, he's like, wow, wow, wow. He's waltzing up. There's This is all kind of vague, but there's like this group of men that kind of turns to look at him. And he's like, snap, maybe I'll turn around. Oh, what? I was just looking at this, this shop right here. I'm not coming to kill anyone or nothing. And then he looks back and his getaway car with Keeler is gone. Oh. And he's like, oh, shit, something is awry. So he starts to, he walks away really nonchalantly, but as soon as he hits that alleyway, he's booking it, because he doesn't know what's happening. All of a sudden, he's trapped. The door he thought he could go through the alleyway into another building, it's locked. And from every corner that he could possibly escape, dudes show up. And he gets knocked out with a gun. It's the fucking KGB. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have an interview with Jim Lang, the host of The Dating Game again, and he says, Chuck would disappear for weeks at a time, and his secretary would just say, he's out of town. So he says, I don't know whether it's true or not, I couldn't say. Wow. And that's the halfway point. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I still feel very lied to. Yeah. yeah. Because it's like, is Chuck Barris involved in anything are we about to be Mm -hmm. beautiful minded or something like that Um, i also just feel like i haven't learned anything new outside of my original predictions Mm. like it's like not quite what i expected but nothing further from what i did nothing super outlandish yeah yeah it's like essentially what we said he works for a game show and also he's like sidelining as a cia operative or something Mm -hmm. so we know he lives because he lived long enough to write a book about it yep he must have written that book after some years that the statute of limitations had passed. Mm. Uh, there's no way him and Drew stay together. I think when she shows up and he's broken, he tells her, get out. And he's, like, mean to yeah. her. I and think he's going to lose everything. Yeah, he's, you know? he's going to be a broken man. The CIA is going to turn on him completely. They're going to maybe try and send someone to kill him, or they're just going to... Um, take him so far away from the life that he's been living as this game show host that, like, he loses everything there, and he's like, fine, at least I got the CIA still, and they're mm-hmm. like, you're bad, go away. Uh-huh. Then, yeah, he's gonna lose her, too. He just seems like somebody who's never satiated. Never you know? satisfied, And yeah. he lives a fairly exotic life, mm-hmm. you know, in the television business with game shows and... And also, like, sidelining for, you know, secret missions yeah. and stuff like that. And and none of the things that he should be contented with are satisfying to him, yeah. even though it's pretty great. You know, like, you seem to have, like, a pretty great significant other and money and excitement, and it's never enough. Mm-hmm. And I think he's going to lose it all and realize what he had was so good mm-hmm. in the first place. I think it's going to end with him being a broken, destitute man. And he's going to write his way out of it. He's going to 
put that pen to paper and share the story and then get recognition for that, but he's still sadly not that much of a household name. Mm-hmm. People, I, I'd never heard of Chuck Bears before, yeah. and yet mm-hmm. I'd heard of, like, Dick Clark. <laughs> right, and I've, and I've heard, so, yeah, I would say my knowledge is, I know Dick Clark to a degree, like, yeah. not even really. Uh, Chuck Barris, the first thing I do is Chuck go, Barry. you're saying Chuck Barry wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> the S is silent. <laughs> yeah, Barry. It's French. Uh, and that I've heard of all of those shows, but I never watched any of them. Yeah. 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 Let's see. I have a couple questions that can get some more predictions out of you, too. Uh, how do you think the KGB found him and or why they captured him? Because he's not that good at his job. <laughs> he, he's, you know... He's a, he's just a layman who they were like, you do this. Yeah. You come yeah. and shove this thing up your butt and then go kill somebody. <laughs> I think that he's maybe been set up, mm-hmm. you know, maybe by Julia Roberts or George Clooney so that so that the KGB will find him on purpose, kind of like as bait. I was going to say he's bait. You, you know, know? Okay. Uh, so yeah. that they can, they're using him so they can find higher intelligence. Okay, how do you think his story will wrap with, let's see... The main, I mean, the main people he interacts with are Penny, Patricia, and Jim. So what do you think? He's gonna push Penny away, because he's mean to her. Patricia, she's gonna look at him, and she's gonna say, that's the CIA, baby. And then she's gonna, like, push him (laughs) off a bridge. (laughs) And then George Clooney is gonna, like, put his arm around Julia Roberts, and the two are gonna walk up in the distance. So smug. So smug. Like, they thought it was funny. Both wearing identical minks. Identical (laughs) minks. I love that. <laughs> um, okay, and then last thing then, just for... It's not personal, it's just business. <laughs> this is America. As they throw their minks on. Yeah. Um, okay, last one more for funsies. What do you think, because I don't think either of you know, what do you think the gong show is about? It, I think I know what the gong show is. Oh, you do. Then do you want Kimmy to guess the first? The gong yeah. show? Mm-hmm. The gong show? I don't know, I'm sure that there's like banging a gong involved. You hit it for something... <laughs> Am I warm? <laughs> yeah. You're warm. You're warm. I think it's people, it's a talent show, and if your talent is bad, they gong you off the stage. Yeah. It's like, get out of here. Go. <laughs> that's so, that's so Is hurtful. that any more mean than America's Got Talent? <laughs> X, yeah. X. And then people booing you. So, what we got here, after the halfway point, Sammy wakes up, there's some voiceover, he's gonna be okay because... Or like, we'll give you one Chuck Barris and also six other Americans for our one badass Russian. Ooh. Yeah. So they do. And they give Sammy Boy back and he's fine. While he's there waiting to be exchanged, he's still freaked out and like, what if I don't make it back? And he can't stop thinking about how he wants to see Penny. Oh, good. Now we have this scene where Jim shows up at Chuck's house unannounced. Chuck is pissed. He's like, what the fuck happened? How did that, how did I get kidnapped? What's going on? And Jim turns up, turns on a record super loud, like so loud. He turns it on so they can speak, right? Yeah, in case his house is bugged. And Clooney, I guess, had even talked to strangers, like when he was planning this movie out and stuff. And he had people say, I hate when they do that in movies because as the audience, we can still hear them talking. So it's like, if I can hear you talking, so can the bad guys. Yeah. So they have subtitles. So, like, cool. they're they're talking so quietly that we can't hear them because they're kind of whispering in each other's ears and the music is so loud that they have subtitles for this whole conversation. Oh. Yeah. Like 
So he's basically saying, I don't know how that happened, but the CIA thinks we have a mole. So somebody in here is fucking shit up. He's like, well, am I safe? And he goes, I don't know. I'm going to lay low for a while. At least you have a real job. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, sit around and do nothing because I well, can't do my job. So watch your back. Will we find out who the mole is? Yes. <gasps> is Bana, it Patricia? Banana. Banana. Do you think it's somebody that you know? Oh my gosh, what if it's Penny? That's the song they'll play when it's they reveal Lupita them Nyong'o. We do know. <laughs> it's actually someone's doppelganger. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we will find out. Now it's 1976, and they're auditioning people for a new show. We get people who come on and they're singing. And it's Chuck, and it's, like, two or three other people kind of sitting at, like, a casting table, and they're watching talent come in and sing, and they all look like they want to die. They're like, wow, these people suck. We've been sitting here watching shit all day. We see, as an audience, we see two of them. On the second one, Chuck Barris, in his mind, picturing himself shooting her dead because he's, like, so tired of being there that he pictures pictures himself shooting this woman from behind to stop her from singing so terribly. And then he's like, oh, my gosh. And he's like, that's enough. I've seen enough. He shoes her off. And he turns to everyone at the table. He's like, I've got it. We kill him. And they're like, huh? And he's like, why should we be the ones dying over here when we can kill them? And he's like, hear me out. We'll only have bad acts, and everyone that comes on the show will be bad, and we will Mm. gong them when it's not fun anymore. When it's, like, (laughs) so bad, it's not even fun to watch. And that's when you get the gong. Okay. So So that's... all talent is bad. All talent is bad. So they, they bring that on, and the show gets picked up, and now we're just instantly at the beginning of the show. This is the first... I think first and only show where Chuck Barris is actually part of it. So he's the host of the gong show. And you guys, basically what I'm trying to say here is that we're about to get like the cutest Sam Rockwell just time that I've ever seen. He's trying to tell, it's like the opening joke that he's going to tell this week on the gong show and he's reading off cue cards and he's trying to tell the joke, but he's getting distracted by other people, like, in the audience and on, on the crew. And he keeps, like, giggling and kind of, like, fidgeting around and snapping and reading the joke, but then kind of getting caught up because the joke is funny. And it's just, he's a force to be reckoned with. It's so good and so, like, all of the movement and idiosyncrasies that he pulls, and I imagine from, you know, an essence of the real Chuck Barris. It's not a copy, but it's got the same vibe. And I, I heard that they also would write his cue cards incorrect because Sam Rockwell was actually reading off the cue cards. Mm-hmm. And they would write them incorrect on purpose because I guess Chuck Barris was notorious for flubbing his lines and stuff. Oh, that's cool. So he was kind of just all over the place like that and would yeah. kind of be a little quirky and crazy. Now we have this scene where Chuck's in a hotel room with a prostitute and she's singing him happy birthday and she's wearing a black veil And it's kind of like a baby talk happy birthday. Scary. Very, like, weird and out of the blue. And then she goes, was that okay? And he's like, yeah. And that's it. That's scary. So I was like, well, okay, that's probably going to come back. Now we get this scene where Chuck is at a restaurant with Penny. And they're eating, and he seems preoccupied in his mind. And she asks him what's wrong. And he says, well, a guy I know killed himself. And we see flashes of Keeler. 
And so he says, a friend of mine killed himself, and we see him, like, on a slab, and it says there's, like, a suicide tag on him. And she's like, oh, my goodness. And they're kind of talking about it. And so he wasn't the mole because he's dead. Now Chuck has to go make a phone call by the bathroom, you know, to pay phone. It's the olden days. Um, <laughs> and Patricia's there. And she slams the phone down. And she's like, uh, excuse me, you were supposed to meet me two hours ago. We don't know if it was for a mission mm-hmm. or, like, to bang because they don't, they don't say. But she's pissed. She's like, you don't stand me up like that. I'm not the kind of girl who get, gets stood up. You know, Keeler's dead, right? Like, what, that doesn't affect you? Like, you're not thinking about it? And then Penny comes and sees them that talking, was the trailer, which yeah. was in the trailer. And this is one of the best acted scenes of the movie because you have to get the timing perfect for this scene to be as good as it was. It's just this scene where all of their character traits are so prominent because Chuck is so skittish and doesn't want anyone to be mad at each other or mad at him and he just wants to avoid this whole thing. And Patricia gives no fucks. So she's like, yeah, I'm here. Like, yeah, I do what I want. And Penny is like, who's this bitch? Like, what's going on? And we get these hilarious overlapped lines where they're all talking over each other. And she's like, who's she? Kind of saying it in a a fake lighthearted way. And she's like, how funny. And it's clear that she's pissed. And then Patricia storms off. And Penny is basically like, I don't know what the fuck that's about, but you have one more chance. Like, stop trying to screw this up. Wow. And she walks away. He's gotten a lot of chances. He's gotten a lot of chances. Now we're back at the gong show with this scene of a really bad Elvis impersonator singing Can't Help Falling in Love. And this is also really brilliant. They start to show, because of that scene we just had, we get a romantic montage of him with each of the women. So it's showing like all the good times he's had with both of them, almost as if he's trying to pick which one he wants to be with. But it's set to this horrible (laughs) version of Can't Help Falling in Love. It's so funny. It's And it's still romantic, the montage, but the song is just awful. This next scene, Chuck is in his office, and his assistant or whoever is like, knock, knock, so-and-so's here to see you. He's like, okay, come on in. The guy comes in, and he's like, dude, I'm so sorry, but we're canceling all your shows. All of your shows. Mm. None of them have good enough ratings sorry and he's like like he's saying sorry but he doesn't seem that sorry and he goes don't shoot me chuck i'm just the messenger and it's just a close-up on chuck's face and and he's just staring at him and he kind of has his hand over his mouth when he says don't shoot the messenger and he makes a finger gun at him and goes like kind of like awkwardly but also like i kind of want to kill you for real right yeah and he goes pew and then the guy doesn't know what to do, and he goes, Wah! and like, <laughs> like, oh no, flails his arms. He's like, what? Like, I'm dead. And that's it. It's oh. <laughs> so uncomfortable, but it's really funny. Um, now he's sad again. Where does he go? The bar to drink his sorrows away. He's talking to some strangers. He's like, Can you believe that? They killed my babies. Why? How could they do that to me? Whatever. And he ends up taking some chick from the bar home with him to fuck. And they're on the couch, and they're naked, and they're in the dark. It's like they're silhouettes on the couch. And who's pulling up but Penny? And walks into the house. And this felt very real. Based on what we've seen of these characters, I was like, this, like, it hurt to watch. Yeah. Because 
even the way he gets up, it's not really apologetic. He's like, fuck, fuck, Penny, like, shit. And they're, like, sitting there in the dark, very clearly uncomfortable that they've been Boy. caught. And he kind of tries to, like, pull his shirt on, but I don't think either of them have pants on. And she just kind of stands there, and she's like, you know, it's one thing for you to go elsewhere for your pussy needs, but to bring them back here to our house, like, our house. And she's not crying, like, it looks like she's going to, but she says everything really calm. It's because she's a tough CIA mole. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, "It's, it's my house, Pen. And she's like, it's our house. Like, we picked it out together, and we decorated it together. And, like, she's like, I stayed here for six fucking hours waiting for a fucking plumber to come fix our bathroom. Like, it's, it's our house. He, he doesn't say I'm sorry, but he says something else, and, and she just goes, you're such an asshole, and then she leaves, and then the next scene is, she's back at her apartment or wherever, and he goes there to apologize, and when I was do- watching the behind-the-scenes stuff, they talked about how this was maybe the most important scene to film, because it... What I felt like when hearing them talk about filming this is that it was very similar to the line they were writing in Itanya, where it was like, you know these two shouldn't be together, and you know this is a really abusive relationship, Yeah. but they needed to make that... They wanted you to still be on his side, even when you don't like him. So, like, that scene where he, like, hits her really hard and the audience is we like... We talked about this. Right. And then the next scene, what does he do? The dove bars. He fills and her the, freezer with dove bars. And the audience, for, not forgives him, but they, they go, aww. I think it's and because it's, yeah. you forget. You're, you're in Tanya's shoes then. Exactly. And that's what the point of it was. Exactly. That's what she felt like and, yeah. So that's what they're kind of doing here, where they're like, okay, with this scene... If we do it even slightly wrong, like, because what it is is she's laying on top of him and he's, like, stroking her head and she's crying. And they're like, if we have her him, like, pat her head the wrong way or say something with the wrong tone, like, if it's even the slightest bit condescending, he's unforgivable. Mm-hmm. Like, the audience won't be on his side anymore. And this scene really got to me because, yes, it was, of course, very upsetting to see her crying, but... It, it was expected because she just walked in on that. And now she's at home and she's just crying about, like, do you even want me around? Like, why am I even here if you're going to be doing that? Like, do you like me at all? And he's stroking her head and he's like, of course I like you. I love you. And he says again, in my own way, which is a shitty thing to say. Mm-hmm. But to him, that's, like, justified. And it's right around here that tears fall out of his face and I like it was just so subtle I didn't hear in his voice that he was I didn't think he was gonna cry and I was just like fuck and then that got me and then I started crying I just didn't they it was just like so natural that it came out because she can't see him he's not crying to make her feel pity on him Mm -hmm. he just genuinely cares about this person and doesn't want this kind of a relationship, but also doesn't want to lose this person. And it was just really heartbreaking. And I think they did it really well. Now we're back at his house. I think he's there by himself, but maybe she's there. Who knows? He comes outside into the pool because he sees that Jim Bird is sitting on his diving board. So he's like, what the fuck are you doing here? And he comes outside and they're talking about who do you think the mole is. They're both kind of coy with each other where you can tell they're trying to see if each other is the mole Mm. 
you see that Chuck gets a little more confidence. He's like, I'm sorry, why are you always so vague with me? What the fuck is the profile that I fit, supposedly? This doesn't quite explain it, but I guess a little bit. He more kind of uses this to be like, I know everything about you. And what he says is, you were supposed to be a twin, but your umbilical cord killed your sister, so your mom blamed you for that ever since. And um, until your little sister Phoebe was born, your mom raised you as a girl. Also, yeah. I'm sorry, what? Yep. He just says that, and then he's kind of like, huh? Huh? And he goes, also, the guy that you think your dad is, the dentist, that's not your dad. Your dad's actually the serial killer who was killed in the electric chair. What? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh. And he's like, Yikes. so you fit our profile. Holy smokes. And uh, after he says all that, Barris pulls a gun on him and he's kind of like, how do I know you're not the mole? Maybe I'll kill you right now. And he's like, I think you can figure it out. Like, something something vague like that. Like, you're smarter than that. And then Chuck looks down, and this whole time they've been talking, the pool has been slowly filling with more and more blood because it's dripping off of Jim's leg into the pool. So it's implied that he's been shot somewhere. So there's just a big cloud of blood in the pool, and that's the end of the scene. So it's not him either. Um, I like that he's <laughs> so extra he came to die at Chuck Barris' <laughs> right? pool, though. Also, like, what if he... Didn't come outside, and you were just like, TikTok. Right, and you wasted your dying breath so <laughs> right. being like, I know your childhood trauma. <laughs> well, you could have been like, who's the mole, not me. <laughs> <laughs> now we have this part where not only has Barris discovered all this new information about himself that he didn't know, he's worried about dying at any minute because, you know, people are dropping like flies. Who's the mole? Who's going to kill me? Uh, he's off stage for the gong show, and we now see the unknown comic show up for the first time in the movie, and he kind of sneaks up on him, and he freaks out, pulls a gun, and, like, points it at the unknown comic's head, and he's like, ah, ah, and then Chuck puts it away, and he's like, sorry, sorry, and then he goes on stage, and it looks like he's about to freak out. He stumbles off stage, like, all, a lot happens at once right now. So we get flashbacks where we see him, like, as a baby, not a baby, but a toddler in a crib, and his mom picks him up, and he's wearing, a girl, like, a girl dress. And she's like, oh, I love being a mommy. Like, you're going to love being a mommy someday. And then we oh, yeah. see this scene where she's singing happy birthday to him with the veil that uh. we saw that prostitute wearing uh. earlier. And then it cuts out of that scene, and there's this horrifying huge like painting in the studio of his mother which I think he's imagining it seems like but it's just huge and it's horrifying and the music is kind of scary and then there's just like pictures going by that are like set pieces we've seen earlier in the film so it's kind of like his entire past is flooding into his mind at once right now and we realize that as everything is happening it's actually he never left the stage. He's just standing on stage not doing anything. It's like the show's over, but he's still on stage, and we get this, like, really uplifting, happy song. You guys wouldn't recognize it. I can't think of it right now, but it's, like, a popular song from that era, and it's playing. It's, like, really weirdly happy, but he's standing there kind of in the dark, and it's showing people clapping, yay, the gong show, and it's panning over all of them. But then as it pans back, everyone in the audience is dead and covered in blood. And he's just, like, on stage, but the lights aren't on anymore. It's, like, kind of blue lighting, and he's just crying. And that's it. 
that's the end of that no. scene. Okay. No, okay. No, of the whole movie? Is that what you I have so many questions. And then it cuts to an interview with Dick Clark, and he goes, yeah, I really don't want to be this guy right Yeah, right? <laughs> Doesn't that guy's life suck? <laughs> so that all happens. Now, we're finally at that hotel part okay. where he's butt-ass naked. And it's him on the floor. It's when Penny's at the door. And we get a voiceover of the apology note that he wrote her, which is why she's here. Mm -hmm. And in the note, he basically said, I'm not asking you to take me back. I just, like, can't live with myself knowing you don't forgive me. I'm sorry for everything. That's it. Then they don't really show what happens with her, but he decides I need to get my shit in gear. And he goes and he shaves off all his facial hair and he washes up and he's like, all right, here we go. The first person he wants to go meet up with is Patricia. So it's, like, kind of insinuating that Penny must have turned him down. And he's like, guess I'll be with Patricia since Mm. Penny turned me down. And so they are at her, I don't know, seemingly her apartment. She's in Boston. And they're just, like, talking about what their life is going to be like together. And she wants to be with him. You know what? Like, your TV shows didn't work out. The CIA thing didn't work out. Like, how about we just live a normal life here in Boston, and that can be dope. And he's like, yeah, and they're looking out over the skyline of Boston together and stuff, and they're, like, drinking coffee, and it's really romantic. And he, like, gets up to go to the bathroom. It almost looks like he's having an allergic reaction. He's, like, sticking his tongue around in his mouth, like something's in his mouth. And then he starts fucking coughing really badly and he falls to the fucking ground and Trisha knew it was Patricia and he's fucking like convulsing and she's like oh man like shucks guess the poison's kicking in and she kind of has like this monologue about how she killed everyone and she's like should have gone and killed Jim myself like he almost didn't even die stupid hitman or whatever yeah and she's like LOL, I fucking killed your ass, bitch. And she, like, drags him to the bathroom, and she's, like, shoving a suicide note in his hand, and he's, like, his fist is all, like, messed up, or his fist, his fingers are all, like, clenched weird because he's convulsing, and she's, like, ha, 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 and, like, walks down the hall, and then all of a sudden... Penny! She's, like, holy shit, I've been poisoned! (laughs) So Patricia is, like, coughing and stuff the way that he just was, and she kind of falls to the ground, and the camera, like, goes with her as she's, like, just fallen on her knees, and as the camera pans out, he's now standing up in the bathroom perfectly fine. (gasps) Then we get a nice little flashback right here of what exactly went down, and I had to rewind it because I was a little bit confused even with, like, how this exactly worked out. So here's how it goes. She makes coffee for both of them. She puts the poison in one of the coffees, stirs it up, whatever. The one that she poisons, she puts a sugar cube on it so that she knows this is the poison one, don't drink that, okay? Yeah. Then there's also a thing of milk, and she puts that in the middle. So it's the two coffee cups, the milk, sugar cubes on the poisoned one. When they go sit down, she puts it down. He has already figured out, must probably in his, like, months in the hotel room that he was just, like, (laughs) doing nothing. He, I don't know, discovered it. He knows she's going to try to kill him. And there's a part when he, when they're looking out over the skyline where he, like, points and says, like, isn't that place beautiful? And as she's kind of leaning forward, he does this really smart thing where he moves the sugar cube over, meaning that that would be, you know, that she would think that one's the poison cup. Yes. But he turns the milk so that she and her brain 
is going to think that all he did is rotate the tray. Yeah. Because since he moved the sugar cube and turned the milk backwards, it looks like he, like, outsmarted her and turned the tray as if he, like, didn't notice the sugar cube. Ah. So when she sees, oh, fuck, he turned the tray, she turns the tray all the way back around so that the one that she thinks is poisoned is on his side, and then she turns the milk and switches the cube so that she thinks she's outsmarted him. But really, he outsmarted her. That is some serious cat and mouse. Very much. (laughs) And the way that she got the him... The dance of the sugar cubes. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so, and, like, to get him to look away, she says something, because she had to think of something really quick, seeing that he, quote, turned the tray. Jeez. She's like, look at that cool painting over there. It's like, great, oh my god. And then she, like, does that whole thing. Anyway, yeah, so she, she fucked that. herself, and she drank the poison, and she dies, and it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. After her death, he returns home and begins writing his autobiography. This is called, as we know, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. As he finishes the script, he gets up and does a little jig, because he's <laughs> Sam and he's always got to be dancing. And as he's dancing, it pans over to the script that says, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, an unauthorized autobiography by Chuck Barris. He finally decides after all this, I'm going to marry that penny girl. And it shows their wedding. Very cute. There's, like, a crowd of people there throwing rice and stuff. Well, I get no points. What? <laughs> it was wrong, wrong, wrong. Oh. <laughs> I do love that you thought it was Penny, though. It made me happy. So, yeah, it's the end of the wedding ceremony, and they're all happy and in love. So it's the end of the ceremony. They're outside, and now Chuck is getting these, like, weird flashes of all his dead CIA friends as if they're at the wedding with him. And it kind of freaks him out. And so he's in the... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's fucking right. She's talking. She has this look on her face of like, yeah, I'm a smart bitch. (laughs) And I'm over here like, stop messing with my emotions. (laughs) Um, So they're in the limo and he just is feeling this overwhelming sense of guilt. And so he confesses to Penny everything. And she's just kind of staring at him. And then she cracks up. She cracks up. And he's kind of like, what are you? Okay. So then he's also cracking up with her. It turns into the both of them are just laughing hysterically. Mm-hmm. And it it's assumed that he is giving her a true confession, but that she doesn't believe him. So he decides, you know what? I'll let her think that was a joke. Um, now, footage of the real Chuck Barris. Yay. Because we haven't had no. any interviews with him, right? So we get footage of the real Chuck Barris, like, walking into that room where most of the people have been interviewed Um, so Chuck Barris walks in there and he like shakes hands with the cinematographer and they're kind of like setting him up and as this is all happening we have a voiceover from Sam Rockwell as Chuck Barris and we see Chuck like kind of messing with his hair and messing with his glasses and stuff and he ends by like looking at the camera and this is what the voiceover says and this is again over all this footage of real Chuck Barris in present day at the time so Mm -hmm. like 2002. It says, I came up with a new game show idea recently. It's called The Old Game. You got three old guys with loaded guns on stage. <laughs> they look back at their lives, see who they were, what they accomplished, how close they came to realizing their dreams. The winner is the one who doesn't blow his brains out. Oh, jeez. He, he gets a refrigerator. Oh, Chuck. <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is the what is the okay, real Chuck so, Ferris say? Okay, so the thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about that 
I said this just a little bit before the intermission because I thought it would spark you guys to talk about this particular thing, but since it didn't, I figured I would let it slide. If you saw the movie, I think you would probably be questioning it a lot more. We have no idea whether this is true or false. The whole movie? That he was in the CIA. Because, yeah, who do you ask? We don't know. And a lot of people think it was, and a lot of people think it wasn't. I think it wasn't. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Where's Patricia's dead body in a hotel room? Yeah. Give me that, and then I'll believe you. <laughs> give me give me any news report of, like, yeah. dead body found in Chuck Barris's pool, mm-hmm. because, unfortunately, I think he's a very tortured soul, and I think he was a major alcoholic, and also I think he was given these weird excursions on the mm-hmm. newlywed game, and so, yeah, he would disappear for weeks at a time, and he was just a bad boyfriend. Oh, yeah. And he could have just been, like, drinking. Right? In these co- countries and people didn't know where he was. These people being like, he would disappear for weeks yeah. at a time. It's like, would he really be doing CIA right. stuff? And would you... But, 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 right. you never know. You there, can't check. There is no knowing. Yeah. I can't check. Yeah. Um, and I love a good conspiracy mm-hmm. theory. Yeah. But, yeah, like, that's why I said, like, are we going to be lied to? And yeah. you know, none of this was true all along. And mm-hmm. there was none of these characters... So, uh, I have quite a bit of, not quite a bit, but, like, a decent amount of notes that I wrote down specifically because there's interesting things on both sides. The first that I'll say is that when Clooney signed on to do this film and he, you know, got the real people for the interviews and stuff, he didn't want to know if it was true or not. He went in with the mentality of, I don't want to know, and that's partially why they are so film noir feeling Mm -hmm. because he wants them to feel fantastical even if they were real he wants there to be that but were they vibe when you're watching it (laughs) i would say one of the biggest persuasions i suppose of thinking that it's true Mm -hmm. is yeah why were people going to west berlin and helsinki (laughs) because those are real places that people went so it's like for me, personally, as a human, wondering if it's true, I would say that's the biggest, what? Why? Yeah. You know? <laughs> if not, why? That seems more expensive than going to, like, Miami. Florida. You know? Stick local. Yeah. Very strange. The girl, so J.P. Morgan was one of the one of the women who was on the gong show as, like, one of the other judges who can bang the gong or whatever, and she is like, that's a crock of shit. I don't believe it for a second. Mm-hmm. Dick Clark seems like he kind of believes it. Mm-hmm. He was like, I don't know, they wouldn't tell me where it was. Like, how am I supposed to know? I'm not the expert here. Oh, another another compelling argument for why this is false is that the unknown comic said he never pulled a gun on me, like like he says in the biography. Yeah. Also, there is a clip in the behind-the-scenes footage, not in the actual movie, but in the behind-the-scenes footage, where they ask him, was this real? And he kind of gives a very coy answer. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, like that. <laughs> So I'm not sure. And the thing that George Clooney said that I also find very compelling for this movie, and which is why they placed that scene in there of all the people in the audience dead, is that he said, well, if it isn't true, I like to think that the metaphor is that he feels responsible for, quote, killing the American viewing audience. And so maybe it's kind or of a... Or just thousands of American marriages. <laughs> oh, gosh, on the newlywed game. Yeah. I don't like that. <laughs> which part? Yeah, which part? I said a lot. The whole he feels responsible for killing the American viewers. Well, that's, that's also... He, I don't think he ever said that. But it's, what, it's like a... Bears? Yeah, that's he never said that. That's interpretation. It's an interpretation. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. I res- don't respect it, but I understand that yeah. a little bit more than maybe that's... 
But just, I don't know, that seems a little pretentious to mm-hmm. me. Nobody around, nobody walks around saying, I was responsible <laughs> right. for this entire, Yeah, you must be like a major narcissist. Uh, well, I was going to say, he kind of <laughs> is. Like, he seems like a major narcissist. To put this into like a context that maybe we can understand, and this might be more blown out of proportion, like, I don't know what I would think if 40 years from now, Simon Cal was like, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and also for people who just know him as the zany gong show host, I wonder mm-hmm. what they thought. Ryan like, Seacrest. Yeah. Confessions of Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> I would have no doubt that Ryan Seacrest tortures people. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? He tortures me with everything he does. Am I right, Mom? (laughs) Just put him in a room and have, like, some crazy rock song playing. Like, it's already torturous. Yeah. Yeah? That's from Annihilation. Ryan Seacrest is going to waterboard you. (laughs) I know how to torture the American people. Yeah, anyway, does anyone have any comments before we do our ratings? I would like to comment on my with my rating, I think. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Ready? Three, two, one. Oh! Okay. Okay, cool. What is that? Is that the coffee? Oh, it's the coffee! <laughs> oh, clever. Yeah, I drew an, I, I gave an eight as my score, but then the circles within the eights are coffee cups, and one has a sugar cube in it. <laughs> I gave it a clever. seven. I gave it a nine. I really like that. Seven, eight, nine. Here yeah. we go. Uh, Kimmy, you start. You guys, I almost gave it lower. I gotta be honest, For this movie was written by Charlie Kaufman, correct? I believe so. And, you know, just having recently watched Synecdoche, I have a feeling of what this film kind of looks like, mm. and it was just really hard for me to follow along with your explanation, like, more than I've ever had any other trouble oh, really? in an explanation that we've done. But because his, you know, the way that he writes, and I'm sure the way that it's like, a pigeonhole to be directed is very disjointed in a way that's, you know, supposed to enhance mood. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, there's, I didn't connect with it very well, and but I felt bad about giving it a higher score because I know that he's such a great writer, because I know that Sam Rockwell is such a good actor. I'm sure it's a far better movie than what I anticipate. Mm-hmm. So that's why I didn't give it a 6.5. Okay. The fact that they round out to an 8, like, doesn't make me mad at your 7. Mm. Yeah. Because an 8 seems fair to me as well. Okay. Yeah. So go 8. <laughs> and as I gave it an 8, I am so eager to see this. More so probably than other movies I have been because the direction sounds stunning. Like, it's I'm really crazy. excited. Yeah. It kind of makes me feel like how, you know, all we could say about Swiss Army Man was like, and then it's amazing, you won't believe. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so hearing these little flares of camera work and of style, I'm just very excited to see that done. The only reason I gave it, like, not a 10 is because it's an early 2000s film. Mm -hmm. Who knows? And then because Chuck Barris doesn't seem like the most commendable person, it sounds like. Uh, You know, I'm kind of afraid of him, and I'm kind of scared that he's going to... Because I, I love Sam Rockwell, too, but, like, maybe I'll be able to separate that, because I think even, like, with Fosse Verdant, I was like, you're mm. bad, Fosse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. bad. <laughs> I kind of feel like the making of Fosse Verdant it has, like, some similarities as far as how the story goes. You know what's really crazy, you guys, is in the behind-the-scenes stuff, they reference the movie All That Jazz often. What? Wow. And I'm like... Looking into the future, see? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Just, like, the flashbacks and you figure stuff out about his childhood, like, mm-hmm. later on in the mm-hmm. series. And True, yeah. That informs 
who he is. And there's is fun style with Bob Fosse. Or yeah. Fosse yeah. 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 Yeah, uh, each, it's like every episode you're getting like a different flavor. Mm-hmm. Like a different musical. That stand-up yeah. episode where it's like black and white and he's like doing oh stand-up about his life. About like, his trauma. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, unlike any other episode that they showed. It was crazy. I feel like every chapter of this movie is like another Skittle, you know? Yeah. It's like a whole pack of Skittles and like... You don't know if you're going to get a yellow one. Another Skittle. <laughs> <laughs> New idiom, folks. This movie is just another Skittle <laughs> in the great tapestry the, the, of candy. No, no, the, the, the movie is the whole I know Skittle what you bag. meant. I think it's just so funny. Each scene is a new Skittle. I truly don't think of Skittles as being that different from one another. I'm like, I'm There's only fruit. like five colors. <laughs> another Skittle sounds like it can be used as both an insult and a compliment. Like... Damn, that was just the next Skittle in the bag. But then you're like, you're that just was another Skittle. You're just another Skittle. <laughs> I didn't mean it to be so. I just so true. I've known but... you so many years. I've never once seen you holding a bag of Skittles. I don't or, like Skittles. Or talking about how like oh, each one's different from the last. Well, I was gonna say M and M's, but I was like, those, those are all too generic. <laughs> <laughs> those don't even have flavors. I know. That's but funny. do Skittles have different flavors? They do. Yeah. What? Yeah, you guys know. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely a lot more so than M&M's. Each flavor is Skittle flavor. Well, that's what I'm saying. But yellow is different from purple. Yes, they are different. Yes. All right. But if you eat a mouthful of like seven different colors, that just tastes like Skittle. It's like Parks and Rec, where he's talking about his favorite foods, and he's like, "I do this thing where I stick a Skittle between two Starbursts." Oh yeah. I call it like flavor sandwich or something. <laughs> I didn't mean it for us to talk that much. This much at length. Skittles really brings out a similar flavor in the Starburst. It really brings out the lemon notes in the Starburst. Oh, <laughs> um, okay. Bad, but, bad. but anyway, more to say about your ratings before I talk about mine. No, I want to hear from the one who's actually seen it. So I, I'm getting more comfortable as we're doing this podcast longer of leaving out big chunks of the movie because especially knowing that you guys wanted to see this already, it's like, why talk about that if it doesn't move the plot forward and then it's something for you to see that I didn't explain, you know? So there are a mm-hmm. decent amount of scenes and there's more meat to those interviews that I didn't say because I don't need to talk about every single one. And there's a lot in the first, like, 35 minutes that I was like, damn, I don't know if I want to do this because I don't want to talk about A, B, and C. I don't get why they're in here. There were just things that were off-putting to me about him as a guy and about the script, and about, like, because, here's the thing, I know that he was involved in the making of the film, like, I know he was on set, I know he liked Sam Rockwell and wanted to cast him as himself, but you don't need to put everything about a person's life in your movie. Like, Mm -hmm. just because they want it in doesn't mean you gotta put it in. So for that, I will say maybe as an adaptation, you should have cut certain things, or maybe there's things in the book that we don't know about that would have added more to the story, a source material that it's from, but that source material is also based on a guy's life, so that's already, like, two sources of information. Mm-hmm. Then you have an adapted screenplay, and then we have a director trying to deal with all those things. So, with the other guy being like, I want to be involved still. Yeah, so yeah. that's just that just seems like a lot to juggle to me, and despite that all, it was beautiful. It's one of the most brilliantly directed movies I've ever seen. Mm. But I think a lot of that is because I knew all that behind-the-scenes stuff. A lot of that I would not have caught on my own. Or even some of the one-shots, you don't think about them, really. I thought that the acting was phenomenal. Every single character, even the side characters, are tense. Like, the the acting is tense all around from everybody. It's cool. And I really like the noir vibe. 
I liked the way it made me feel. I thought it was a really fun time, uh, most of the, you know, middle part, and it made me sad. I just felt like there was a lot of meat there, and I really liked the story, and I just felt like there was so much to dig into that I was just really excited to get to do it and explain it. And just, if you dissected the movie, I think individually a lot of the parts work brilliantly to get, like, separately as well as together when they come as a whole. Um, but yeah, I loved it, and I definitely recommend it. I feel like you're both going to watch it together, and that makes me excited. No, we for sure will. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right, well, to close this week, what are you adding to your watch list, and what do you recommend? I would like you two to go first. I'll go last. For my watch list, I am adding to it a film I've already seen once this past week, even, and once before that, but I want to watch it again with the actor's commentary on it. That oh, film, you watched it this past week? I've watched Junebug this past week. Oh. Yeah. And I, I didn't talk about it on What Did We Watch This Week because uh, there's a possibility I might do a future episode on it. Mm-hmm. And so before I do that, though, and just because you did this with a Sam movie, I am so stoked to have ordered Junebug in the mail and get to watch it now oh, with exciting. Amy commentary on it. Breakthrough role. That's just so exciting. That exciting. Um, so that's what I'm adding to my watch list. And then for recommendations, it's another Amy movie. But it's really more in line with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. She's mm-hmm. in it for a bit. Uh, it's Catch Me If You Can. Oh, oh yeah. I didn't know she's in that because I've never seen it. You haven't seen it? No. Oh, what? Okay. I'd love to. Yeah, it's a great movie and it's... Uh, Isn't it Leo and Tom? It's Leo, Nardo DiCaprio, and Tom Hanks. <laughs> Leo and Nardo. <laughs> it's the true story of Frank Abagnale Jr., who is very much a Confessions of a Dangerous Mind kind of person. It even opens with, what, what, what's the dating one called? The game? The, the game. dating game? The dating game. It opens with like a 1960s dating game show like that, oh. where it's called, uh, it's called like, Who Am I? Or Which One Am I? And it's it's like three men, and they all come out and they go, I'm Frank Abagnale. And like one of them is Leo. And it's oh. it's just like a fun way to start the movie of like, which one of these young men did pull off these insane cons. Oh, cool. Because it's a true story about a, a yeah. con artist who began, yeah. like, at the age of 15. Wow. Um, and just all the places it took him around the world, all the things he went through, and it's very Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, and, awesome. and Amy's in it. Cool. Yeah. Okay, so yes. for my watch list, I would like to add Magnolia. It's mm-hmm. a Paul Thomas Anderson oh. film with mm-hmm. Tom Cruise and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Julianne Moore. It's another recommendation from my boss, and since oh. I kicked one of those off the list, I just gotta add another one. Nice. I've seen clips from it. I don't really know how I feel about oh. it, but can't not can tell I've tried it. I guess he loves PTA, right? It's he it, his favorite. Okay, his favorite person. And yeah. PTA loves PSH. <laughs> yes, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, hello. <laughs> and for my recommendation, <clears throat> I would like to say The Aviator. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know, we referenced Howard Hughes earlier, and twice tonight. <laughs> I yeah, and I just think it was the movie that Leo should have won the Oscar for. Mm. I know he's up against some like really crazy people that year, but over the Revenant by tenfold. Like, mm. um, so then I realized I forgot to say this at the beginning of the podcast, so I might as well say it now. So both of my things for this week are gonna be Sam things, partially coincidence actually because. I just finished reading Choke by Chuck Palahniuk, and I've never read it before, but Kimmy and I did watch the movie a couple years ago. I watched it because it's Chuck and because it's Sam, but now that I've read the book, I feel like a lot is different, but maybe I just don't remember as much about the movie as I thought. 
And, you know, why not watch it again? Because I love both of those guys, and it's fresh in my brain, so I want to watch it, like, soon. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I want to rewatch that. And then on my recommendation, what I wanted to say earlier that I forgot is that the whole reason this that I w decided I wanted to do a, a Sam movie and a passion project like this with the, the DVD commentary and everything is because Courtney had recommended that I see the movie Matchstick Men, and I happened to find it at this store for $2, so I bought it. And when I watched it, there was a really cool like mini documentary that was on the DVD, and I learned so much about the movie, and that movie was also really, really good. And I was sad that Courtney had seen it because I was like, man, that would be a great one for me to do by myself. So mm. I'm like, I'm going to find another one just like it. And that's what this is. So if you haven't seen Matchstick Men, highly recommend that. That's also a nine for me. Mm. Well, Thanks. catch us next week for an episode from the past. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Moving to the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a film about the future, but it's from the past. <laughs> Almost like. <laughs> it's not Back to the Future. <laughs> it's not. Uh, no, it is Repo, the genetic opera, explained by myself, Courtney, and a special guest star. Ooh. Again, it's from the past, so enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, we recorded it a little while ago. Yes. So. Over a month ago. You'll see. <laughs> Yee! Bye!